You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes Deadair Nipe here with always. Typical Lydia. Today's episode, we're going to be doing the 1981 classic, My Bloody Valentine. Still in the 1980s. I'm sorry, Lydia. That's okay. We're... We'll make up for it with our next episode. Mm-hmm. Happy Canada Day, by the way. Yes, happy Canada Day to you too, sir. <laughs> Thank you very much. Lydia and I, dear listeners, are Canadian. We're proud Canadians. And every time that we have an opportunity, we love to shine a light towards Canadian horror. When I first started writing stuff for spottedpictures.net, that sounded as, as if I got hired by Spotted Pictures. It's my website. I did it. Yeah. When I started doing my own shit on the internet and putting it out there for everyone to read, I wanted to shine a light on Canadian horror, especially Canadian independent horror. I thought that it would be a good... There was two reasons. One, I happen to like it. Two, I thought that since I was starting out and I was so small time, I'm not going to get people like John Carpenter and Wes Craven to talk to me. But... I could definitely get people moving and shaking at conventions who are trying to push their wares on other people, trying to get the, the word out on their movies, are always willing to talk about things, and they were always willing to send me movies, which really helped. I was a part-time worker at the time. I didn't have a lot of fucking cash for this type of things. And I wanted to, to find my niche that way. And as the website progressed and as the show progressed, we moved away from that. So it's always nice to go back to our Canadian roots and talk about Canadian horror and when I was looking at the calendar a few months ago, I noticed that Canada Day fell on a Friday, our release date. So I thought, what a great opportunity to talk about what many people consider to be the gold standard in Canadian slasher horror from the big boom of the late 70s, early 1980s, 1978 to 1984, generally considered to be the golden era of the slasher subgenre of horror. Because it's Canada Day, this is an absolutely special episode. Probably the most special episode ever. And not special like round paper and big pencils. No, with a mittens pinned to our jackets all year round. We actually have an interview. And now, I think our listeners are, is it your mom again, Wes? No. But there's another one of those coming. We actually, through a miraculous conflation of circumstances, had access to one of the actors that played in My Bloody Valentine. Yeah, it wasn't too long ago. I had a nice note from my friend Lindsay McMillan, and thank you, Lindsay. Uh, she had mentioned that she is now related to someone who had been on the cast of My Bloody Valentine. And they had got talking about horror in general and about our show and about Ottawa horror which, I mean, if I'm going to write about Canadian horror, I was writing about just Ottawa horror. So I totally can relate to wanting to shine a light on the unsung, smaller Canadian indie filmmakers and actors and such. But So she was talking to him about that because he is a Canadian actor. And he said that he'd be pleased to sit down with us and do whatever My Bloody Valentine-related things. It was Jim Murchison. Mm-hmm. We got in touch pretty quickly, and of course I came back with, as a matter of fact, we've been planning on doing My Bloody Valentine for this Canada Day, which just worked out so 
spectacularly that we could all get together at the same time and be able to bring you this show with some added bonus. Yeah, absolutely. So this is going to be a big, fat, old, double-stuffed edition of the Dead Air podcast. And uh, just so you guys, because we didn't really know how to format it. Do we just release the interview and that's the episode? Do we watch the movie? We still want to talk about the movie. Yeah, so what we wanted to do was, what we're going to do is we're going to give you a regular episode and then we're going to put it at the end and then you can listen to the interview afterwards. That way people who like this format will get our discussion about the movie and then people who want to hear the interview, you can just wait till the end and then you get the interview. Yeah. Of course, it is our first interview as well. Yeah. Not counting, like, talking to your mom and talking to Amy because those were shows with a theme of themselves. It wasn't a straight-up interview. Yeah. We straight-up interview Jim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, yeah. we grill him. <laughs> we grill him. Yeah. Well, I was just talking to him. I don't, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's more of a conversation. It's more of a conversation interview. because we, got, we, we were sitting down just before Jim was going to arrive. And I, I told Lydia, I was like, I haven't prepared any questions. The look she gave me, guys. Oh, my God. I thought I was going to die. And then I could have melted a snowbank. Oh, my God. And, and she's like, I told you to do this. I have no recollection of her doing that, but there's no reason to think that she's lying. So, I have a text record of it. Well, you know what? There we go. And then she just repeated it again and again, like she was having a bit of an episode. And I... That's not entirely true. No, no, no. I she... think I came back with, I figured as much. Yeah, I'm a bad student, guys, and I'm lazy, and I thought I would just talk to the guy like a human being and questions would come up organically. And guess what? They did. However, Lydia definitely came and saved the day. With actual questions? <laughs> With actual questions. But the questions that you did have were what questions that I had assumed that you would want to ask. But yeah. what I was hoping with you were writing them down, that any little tiny nuggets of fun things in the film that he might not think to mention... And that you may forget to ask would have been written down. But we even got into some of those little things. Yeah. Like dogs. There was some dog talk, people. There was some dog talk. Dog fans, stay tuned. We were guilty of putting out a couple uh, holiday-themed and novelty horror at the time, weren't we? Were we? Yeah, like happy birthday to me. Yeah, there was definitely that. Would you say Terror Train is a New Year's Eve? Well, it's definitely a New Year's Eve it's not called New Year's Evil. No. Um, wow, what a stinker. Uh, Terror Train, I consider that a holiday slasher for sure because yeah. the, the impetus is the fact that it's New Year's Eve. Yeah. Right? So I, I think that definitely counts. I think that... Black Christmas? Black Christmas is definitely... So would you say we're guilty of making these slashers that have to do with holiday themes? Yes, but let's be fair here. It's not as though like Canadians were were thinking Canadian film producers or people producing films out of Canada were thinking that this is going to be our thing. It was just a thing that worked. Black Christmas came out in the early 1970s, uh, considered to be the first uh, true slasher film. Then we do Halloween in 1978, becomes the biggest money-grossing independent film of that time it's a horror uh, picture and it also is holiday themed because it takes place on halloween then people like sean cunningham unabashedly say fuck it let's rip it off friday the 13th comes out that becomes a massive fucking success in 1980 so if we're not really guilty of anything but chasing that dollar yeah because holiday themed horror films are 
what was working. People loved it. Because one of the things is like, oh, a horror movie about Christmas? That worked. A horror movie about Halloween? That worked even better. A horror movie about like a, an arbitrary unlucky day of the month? Oh my God, that worked e- like even better. We're making so much money. Quick. What are the holidays do we have? <laughs> and and so you just look at like New Year's Eve and like Thanksgiving and birthdays. I'm so glad that someone finally did ha- fucking Valentine's Day because I often like to slaughter people on Valentine's Day. To any of our CSIS or FBI people that might be listening or local law enforcement, I just want to say that when Lydia said this to me, I assumed she was joking. So Old West is off the hook, officially. Be that as it may, I do appreciate the Valentine look of this film mm-hmm. a lot. And like we were discussing while we were watching the film, if I lived in a place called Valentine Bluffs, I would have like a Valentine wreath on my door or something mm. like that. I wouldn't decorate the way that some people decorate in this film, but I would definitely celebrate it not in the commercial way or the guilt tripping way that most people do celebrate it if they celebrate it at all or don't just fucking hate it and cry themselves to sleep with a bottle of wine and gain 800 pounds on chocolate that they bought at the dollar store or whatever. That's a very specific picture you're painting. (laughs) It's not hard. I have access to the internet. That's true. So I would definitely, if I lived in a place like this, celebrate some semblance of Valentine's Day because it's just novel because of the name of the town. You know, people who have a, a, a beef with Valentine's Day, I always, I, I respect that. It's just like, look, if, you, if you're if you just like, crash commercialism, I don't have anybody, blah. But, or if you're really sad about it, I mean, don't get beat up on yourself because you know what? You're single every other day of the year too, so be sad about that. Um, that is exactly awesome. Thank you. Yes. High five, Wes. But because, yeah. I also have a problem with people who are aggressive about it. And I get this around New Year's too. Where people, um, I don't have anyone to kiss at midnight. Well, but but it's not only that, but it's like it's it's like aggressive in the sense that's like, oh, you're all out having parties. I'm at home eating pizza and watching Netflix. Fuck you. Yeah. I'm like, whoa. All right. All yeah, right. They have therapists for that, and you know, <laughs> well, maybe I, a drug regimen isn't for you, but you shouldn't turn your nose up at it right away. <laughs> I, it's always crazy to me. So, like, like Valentine's Day is the same thing. It's like, oh, uh, my Valentine's Day, I'm gonna lie here with a pizza box on my gut and watch movies. Fuck you. I'm like, okay, like I get it, like, like because because I was like, you don't. Like, I don't know if you're trying to come off as. This is awesome, rock and roll, this is exactly what I want to do. It doesn't sound like it's exactly what you want to no, do. No, because if it was, it would be phrased a little differently. Yeah, but or like, I sit around have... on St. Patrick's Day and listen to the scanner and laugh my ass off about people being intubated for drunkenness. Like mm-hmm. That's a little different, too, to be not participating and have an attitude about it. <laughs> what? It's true. No, no, I totally agree with you. It was just the idea was funny to me to not participate and have an attitude about it. Yeah, but not feel sore about myself and not be like transferring some sort of blame onto people that are blameless for nothing about things that you can change. Anyway, we're totally off topic because this isn't even about Valentine's Day for us. It's about (laughs) Canada Day. It is about Canada Day. Yeah. It's so hard to pin down exactly what works in horror and what doesn't work in horror. And it's so hard to pin down how things become really big and how things get shuffled into the back. You know what'll help you pin down things? A pickaxe. You're being uncharacteristically funny today. So obviously there's a lot of factors to consider 
Sometimes it's just the marketing and distribution juggernauts that you have. Paramount using their wiles to get a wide reach like that. That has a big factor in how things become really mainstream. The same reason like nowadays when you watch certain types of horror that why are, why are these ones make it to theaters and these ones don't? I'm like, well, somewhere someone's thought that this would make more money if it went to theaters. And sometimes people look at a movie and they're like, well, this is good and we'll distribute it. But it's not going to it'll cost us too much to put it in theaters and it won't return on that. So in order to maximize profits, movies will just go direct to video. In the case of My Bloody Valentine being released into theaters, it came out. It had the unfortunate consequence of coming out in a time when there was tons of these types of movies. If people look at the theaters nowadays and they're sick of uh, paranormal horror films, lots of ghosts, lots of demons, uh, and there's horror fans that do have a problem with it, uh, which is uh, fair. You just have to look at this as right now we're just in a paranormal boom. This is what is making money. And so, and to when, believe me, when it stops making money, they'll go away. So when My Bloody Valentine comes out, and critics turn their nose up at it instantaneously because of the fact that, in their estimation, they've seen it a million times. They think, oh, teenagers, oh, slasher, even though it's not teenagers and it's a completely different scenario. And it does happen to have a homicidal maniac in it. But again, those are the bare bones facts about the movie, not the plot in question, which always drives me crazy because you never see those complaints with action movies. Or when people criticize it follows and it's like, yeah, it's teens and it's like a horror movie, but it's not like a teen horror movie. Yeah, so. but but you're, you're saying that and, and people are instantaneously filling in their own blanks without you actually explaining it properly. But bad critiques aside, this was coming out in an era where there was just so much being thrown in your face. So even as a horror fan, you might have missed it. And also there was bigger horror movies coming out at the time, most notably Friday the 13th Part 2, which uh, came out just a little bit before this, and other films like that. But My Bloody Valentine sat on the shelf for a lot of people. But slowly, thanks to the video market and thanks to it being a quality slasher film... And maybe partially due to people who did remember, because they did position this really, really well for real hardcore fans of horror at the time who definitely rushed out to see this. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Yeah. So, it, like, My Bloody Valentine quickly became a movie that people had in their back pocket that they were happy to display to you, like a, like a cat bringing home a dead bird. <laughs> it's their gift to the family. I'm going to teach you how to hunt for your own good horror movie. Here's one. Any time that I like something and I want to share it, whether it's a song, whether it's a movie, whether it's a comic book, whether it's an idea, I have an uncontrollable urge to share it. An uncontrollable urge. Yeah. And... I think that in the best places of their hearts, horror fans do the exact same thing. Whether they're trying to show it to you because, oh, you think, oh, what do you like? Freddy, you like Jason, you like Michael, you like Chucky? Well, here's Harry. Uh, you don't know anything about it. And, and, and so they can, I, they can educate you in their estimation and then also they can feel intelligent and important and look at, I've brought, I mean, this is coming from someone who has a fucking horror podcast. So it is sort of like the worst case scenario when you're talking about the fan who wouldn't be sharing it for the right reasons necessarily or had been keeping it in their back pocket to yeah. be a dick about it yeah. instead of what I've had a pretty, for the most part, lucky experience when it comes to horror and other horror fans. Even though I generally don't talk to a lot of people, it would be like, 
if I were to complain that there aren't a lot of good Canadian slashers from the 80s, they'd be like, oh my gosh, had you not watched My Bloody Valentine? Mm-hmm. And it's like a normal sharing thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which slowly it has crept through fandom to become, I guess, is it, would you call it a cult classic? It's definitely a cult classic. I think that when you're talking about a film like My Bloody Valentine, not a lot of people know it, but the people who know it love it. It seems like a big cult to me, though. It is a big cult. It is. It is it's a big cult now. So yes, okay. I I think that it, it helps in two folds. One, the remake, which of course my classic argument of if you don't like a remake, it serves as a commercial for the original. What the fuck do you think happened when the new movie came out? There were horror fans out there that said, hey, by the way, this is a remake. Oh, it's a remake? I want to see the original. People just have that reaction. And so they go back and watch it. Your cult grows then. Um, And then those people show that movie to other people. And so, again, you have these little bursts throughout the years of more and more people getting into the movie. And the thing about a cult classic film is those numbers don't really decrease unless people are dying like at a very huge rate. Typically speaking... It gets bigger year by year. More people get shown this film. More people talk about this film. And when you're dealing with a movie that has then gotten a remake, oh my God, like it, it explodes. And so now when you even say My Bloody Valentine, there are people that you're going to talk to that think you're talking about the 2009 film, which is fine. Uh, and then you can just say, hey, by the way, there, there's, there's an original movie. And you can hold your head even higher as a Canadian because of the fact that it is a Canadian slasher and it's a Canadian slasher that is highly regarded as something of a diamond in the rough because of the massive amount of slasher movies that came out in the quote-unquote golden era. And a lot of not very, not as tightly produced and not as well filmed, not as well oh, yeah. put together films, just trying to ride on the coattails of the mm-hmm. bigger slashers. Yeah. It's weird because I would never react like a, like a dick like that if somebody thought, it's just never dawned on me until you said it, that if I were to say My Bloody Valentine and someone had no idea that the recent one was a remake or like a loose remake. I'd be I'd be internally floored and flabbergasted. <laughs> I wouldn't probably think much less of them because like there's a lot of people younger than me in this planet because I'm old as dirt. But like <laughs> I, it just it would never dawn on me that someone would not know that. It was very well held together dirt. I think that me coming from a, a standpoint of I'm a horror fan with not a lot of horror friends. Yeah. I don't have any horror friends. So I, except for you, you, Hello. and hi. And, and I think that that it might seem crazy to people. And as I, as my adult life, I've met more horror fans and I say, yeah, I don't know any horror well, fans. Well, the bulk of it, yeah, was the, definitely spent in, in solitude, which uh, Amy Vosper is, that's something that she studies is mm-hmm. how horror fans watch their movies. And a lot of them watch them alone. So that makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah, so I, I, like maybe that's how come I now have the perspective of a horror fan who a explains spends a lot of his time explaining things because I'm always just used to people not knowing what the fuck I'm talking about. Yeah, making a reference to a movie that they've never seen, not knowing things, and I'm never trying to like you know push up my glasses and be like yes, suckle on the teat of my horror knowledge. It's not that. It's just I like to explain things i guess i like to and talk. you like to share things with your friendly yeah. guy you <laughs> do friendly you. things you're a friendly fella Wes. yeah and a happy-go-lucky explaining type guy except that they see they they only hear this they don't see you out and about in the world talking very much the same like <laughs> when i say that you someone literally stuck someone meaning you stuck a microphone in front of us yeah. and the only difference is that there's a microphone in front of us it's uh exactly true 
<laughs> it's exactly true. So you weren't one of those dicks that kept this movie in your pocket, so to speak. Yeah. And whipped it out. Yeah. Whenever somebody needed to suckle on your teat. <laughs> I'm so happy that I made you say so many bad words. <laughs> I think I said bukkake in the last episode. <laughs> you did. I did. Uh, so, My Bloody Valentine, what the fuck is this movie about? Well, we're going to take you to a small town. That could be any town. Could be anywhere. We're not exactly sure. But the town the town is Valentine, right? Valentine Bluffs. Valentine Bluffs. They're not bluffing. They love Valentine's Day. Well, actually, they don't. They haven't celebrated in about 20 years. And the reason for that is because of the fact that there was a horrible incident that happened way back when, in the 1960s, when things were different, Lydia. When things were different. Pickaxes <laughs> still carve straight through chicks. That was one thing that remained unchanged. That's absolutely true. Go ahead. I do like how this film doesn't open in the flashback. It doesn't open in 1960. We get a nice dose of why things are the way they are before we get into the 1960s. No, that's absolutely true. So we're introduced to uh, a, a, a couple that looks like they're stowing away into the mines for a tryst. And well, he's getting undressed. See, underneath that mineshaft onesie, there's a lady under there. She's ready to have a good time with her very stoic gas-masked fellow. I like how she's like, take the gas mask off. With her eyes, of course. No <laughs> words. And he's like, no, baby. I'm keeping this gas mask on. And I'm all like, please do. Oh, yeah. That's what makes it sexy. But, of course, by the time she is half stripped down... Get shoved onto a spike, and oh shit, we're right into the title. And I love that close-up on the face screaming, going into her mouth, and then My Bloody Valentine, Two Hearts for the O's, Blood Drips Down. It's fucking amazing. I think so, too. It's one of the nicer openings. Yeah, I was like, what a great way. I always love a horror movie that gives you a cold opening, that ends with a kill, boom, title treatment, title's got a little bit of graphics on it, I'm in. Especially dripping blood. Oh. Right? Yeah. So we open things up and we're in a mine shaft. What are they mining? Do you know? According to the internet, the princess mine where this was filmed, they mined a gemstone called sodalite or mineral called sodalite that's used as a gemstone. So we could just assume that Valentine Bluffs is a booming industry for sodalite. Yeah. They don't say explicitly what they're mining, I don't think, that I recall. Probably not. But Let's is... just imagine that it's coal, because they're filthy little coal miners. They are filthy little coal miners. They're all dirty in the face. And this is where we meet uh, the bulk of our male cast. Um, TJ, Axel, Hollis, Tommy. Mm-hmm. Uh, who's played by Jim Murchison. Yeah, who's played by Jim. And Howard. Yeah. We, get a, we get a bit of a shower scene. All these guys just talking, getting real excited. One of my favorite kinds of shower scenes that isn't about it being a shower scene. Yeah. It's a pretty important thing because if they're going to be going anywhere, they need to wet the grime off. Yeah. And it works to show how these guys engage amongst one another. It's a lot of what the beginning is devoted to is showing how these guys work mm-hmm. and play and shower together. Yeah. Let me ask you this. If this was a lady shower scene, how do you think this would have been filmed? A lot like any other shower scene. Probably. Like slow motion, water cascading down their nubile bodies. Best case scenario would have been filmed like the shower scene in Slumber Party Massacre. Mm-hmm. Like just coming off the court, you need to actually shower because you have a reason to shower and you're not hitting on one another. Yeah. 
And you're not hitting on the camera. Camera's not hitting on you. Yeah. Now, these guys are just talking about how they're going to do their girlfriends. Yeah, and not in, like, such horrible terms, but yeah, basically. Oh, no. They're going to woo their girlfriends. Oh, gotcha. It's Valentine's Day. It is Valentine's Day, and this is going to be the biggest event of the year because it's been 20 years since they've had a last Valentine's Day. And we know this because after the boys are done with their shower, they head over to, a, what is it, like a rec center, I suppose, and uh, some sort of, like, communal place where... It's the Union Hall. Union Hall, yeah, yeah, right. So it's basically anytime you're going to put on a function, I guess. And there's going to be the big Valentine's Day party that is being put on by Mabel, uh, overseeing everything that's going on in the town. All of these decorations that are happening in the town is the responsibility of this one older woman who was, you know, probably lived in the town her whole life, probably remembers what it was like when they used to celebrate Valentine's Day. Probably had a cute boyfriend and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Cute minor boyfriend. Oh, and yeah. she's like what we've decided is like this matriarch of Valentine. She represents yeah. not the getting laid Valentines and yeah. gorfing on chocolates. Yeah. But the spirit of Valentine. Yeah. yeah. The saint of Valentines, as it were. Because she is doing all the decorations. She seems very sweet. She's putting up with a little bit of shenanigans. Yeah. But... Just really genuinely likes this holiday. And even at one point, I guess the mayor has mentioned to her that she's gone a little overboard with the decorations. But I think it looks great. It looks a lot more like uh, 4th of July. That's a really good point, actually. And I think that the, even her, it, it, it's just like, well, we have, this has to be a big Valentine's Day celebration. We haven't had one in 20 years. The mayor is not... Uh, don't ic- remind people. Ixnay on the ears, yay. Yeah. Like... He doesn't want them to really make a lot of mention because you know, folks around here are sensitive. We know that something happened. We definitely know that the movie started out with a death. We're not precisely uh, knowledgeable about the particulars at this juncture. So this is where the boys tear in. And man, do I mean they they tear into this place and they like instantly gravitate to all the respective ladies give them all their kisses. It's all very sweet. It's actually, um, one of the things I like a lot about this movie uh, and one of the things that gets mistaken for is the fact that, you know, you're not dealing with sort of horny teenagers. You're dealing with with young men who are done with high school and this is their job. They're minors. They're blue collar. These are adults. And there is the one scene that I think belies all of that is when they're told way later that the dance is canceled and they're all kind of like oh why we want to have a dance and it's like that's very teenager-y but when you're steeped in and when you're sucked into this storyline it mm -hmm. all works for them being like young adults they are adults yeah they are super like it's high energy It's it's the attitude of these guys have a dirty job and holy fuck is it physically demanding they're probably spending a minimum of 10 hours in that mine every single day so it's a work hard play hard environment so the second they're done their jobs we're cracking our beers moosehead and we are seeing our ladies and we're just and we're really excited for this party to be out of the fucking underground if you've been a minor they it's not an exaggeration whatsoever and they may even be downplaying the most hard partying miners that i've ever met if you go up north you meet a lot more miners than you would around here but there is an every single day kiss the ground beneath your feet that you made it out alive every fucking day feeling Mm -hmm. um even if it's a very small feeling 
or a very big and celebrated every single day feeling, nothing tastes better than a fucking beer and fresh air after a day of work yeah. every day as a miner. And a lot of them are working there for decades, lifers. Mm. There's many lifers that are underground almost every day, miles underground. Mm. And it's a terrifying job. So they have post-traumatic stress disorder every single night. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's not an exaggeration whatsoever. Yeah. I think that's why the, um, the any adolescent behavior that people might attribute to them, uh, like uh, we talk about this in uh, Jim's interview about some of the people who like might criticize, well, they act awfully young. They sure are rambunctious. I'm like, yeah, wouldn't you be a buck wild the second you're done your job? Fuck yeah. Let's have some beers. I want to see my girl. Yeah, we're having a party this weekend. That's a really big deal. Who the fuck wouldn't need to blow off steam every single day like that? And that's part of what speaks to my parents as horror watchers, me, and things like that, is that her father had been underground. My uncle had worked underground for quite a number of years. I have quite a few friends from Mm -hmm. high school that ended up being miners. I've met people since that ended up working in mines and had quite a few friends that just worked as hard as they could to get out from the underground because it was such a good paying job and mm-hmm. all their friends were there and their family, his, some of their fathers had worked underground and they were just hoping to get some sort of job still in the company or maybe overseas mining up top, but just, you know, wouldn't leave the job. So it was so interesting to see a horror film based there and see a lot of really actual footage with really believable characters. And they didn't gloss over the fact that they were minors. You're really down there with them. Mm-hmm. So the boys are hitting the pub. And this is where we get a little bit of a campfire story. In a bar, a rowdy bar full of people. Which I dig. Yeah. Because your campfire story doesn't necessarily have to be in a campfire scenario. Like the beginning of the fog? Yes. Like the beginning of the fog. It does it so much better than the beginning of the fog. I like the beginning of the fog. I was gonna say, I was like, don't don't make fun of the fog. I love it, and I love a good campfire story. Mm-hmm. Always, always will. This one is just done so so well. It's almost like Ernest goes to camp. <laughs> <laughs> really, uh, told by the creepiest motherfucking bartender in the universe. It's almost as good as the Big Bertha story in Pee Wee. <laughs> His face is going to turn all crazy and shit. All stop motion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we d- dissected it a little while we are watching it because they do use a totally different light technique on this dude to make him have a little more gravity. All the sound dies away because we were just in this like ruckus, rambunctious, happy party scene. Mm-hmm. And the camera actually does something that it doesn't do a hell of a lot. At the beginning, you noticed the Dutch tilt. Yeah. They do use that. They do definitely do the Dutch tilt, yeah. It helps, like, kind of skew our perspective. And in the party scene, it's a lot of soft light. So we can see what all these people look like quite Mm -hmm. clearly. And the light is filtered and soft, not a lot of harsh shadows. But as soon as he starts telling this ghost story, it's like you're in a truck with Big Bertha because there's, like, harsh side lighting Mm -hmm. and the camera starts to either pull in really slowly giving him a lot of importance mm-hmm. or pulling away which makes it very eerie oh, disorienting almost yeah because what do you do when someone's telling you something horrible yeah you start to pull away yeah 
it's really interesting. We're treated to a flashback which tells us a story about Valentine's Day, 1960. A bunch of guys were working down in the mine. There was a Valentine's Day party that was going on in town. The supervisors ducked out a little bit early, and when they did that, the mine collapsed. Now, it took them weeks to dig the guys out because while this was happening, they didn't react right away because they're at the party having a good time and it wasn't until I guess the next day that they realized that there was a problem six weeks later or however long it was they finally break through one guy is alive Harry Warden now in the version of the movie that we watched we watched the original DVD release which was very heavily cut they cut away from a scene that explicitly showed that Harry Warden was eating the dead. Yeah, he didn't just hold a dead arm and have the illusion that he might have been eating it. Mm -hmm. Now, later on, even in this version of the movie, they have the line that specifically points out to cannibalism by saying that. But in this scene, they actually showed it. So we have old Harry screaming at the camera. He's holding a severed arm. Looks pretty good. And he's gnawing on it. When Harry was released, he was crazy. And he went to a mental institution in a nearby location he escaped from that place and went back and he killed the supervisors exactly one year later Mm -hmm. happy valentine's day fuckers Mm -hmm. and warned that if ever this town celebrated valentine's day again murders would start and so that is how come there has been the kibosh has been put on all valentine's celebrations until this point in time and this bartender really wants the guys to understand the guys and the ladies to understand that they shouldn't be holding this valentine's day celebration at all and it does sound like it has so much gravity in this scene i'm enraptured by the campfire story and the word of warning mm-hmm. but of course there's going to be that that dick out there that says and they never could have a dance ever again yeah. and make fun of it yeah which is what happens breaks the tension with a well-timed fart noise and we're off to the races again and it's still party time yeah except us as the audience are all kind of creeped out right now it's true now we glossed over this at the very beginning but we're introduced to uh, the main uh, cast of characters also we're learning that uh, our our male lead is tj and he's been away for a little while he went over to the west coast to make his way in the world it's probably one of those scenarios his father's a miner he was a miner he didn't want to be left in this town as a miner he wanted something different for himself so he goes away leaves his friends his girlfriend behind and falls flat on his ass and has to go home like a dog with his tail between his legs and when he comes back not only is he ashamed of himself because he left and it was probably this, see you guys later, I'm off to be important, and then a cut to a, a year or whatever later, he's back again, he's working back in the mines, and his lady, Sarah, is now dating one of his best friends, Axel. They're together now. And so he spends a lot of his time sort of leaning up against a wall, scowling at them, kind of joking around when something funny happens he cracks a smile he likes these guys he even likes axel but it's there's a lot of confusing emotions going around here and this is not exactly the most talkative guy in the world this is not a dude that you would be 
oh, he's really in touch with his feelings and expresses himself in healthy ways. No, he's a very manly man who doesn't express himself and just gets really frustrated. So there's a lot of, he seems kind of fine. He seems kind of tense. Oh, he's punching a wall. Oh, or he's aggressively playing a game and everything's fine. I don't want to talk about it, but there's definitely tension there. There's tension uh, between these two men over this woman. And that is our main subplot to the movie. Or really, when you're slowing down for a minute, which is something that this film does quite a few times, slows down and gets some characterization in. There's a fairly robust cast. There's a lot of characters in this movie. But they do have quieter moments. In particular, I love, love the scene that happens not too long after this in the junkyard where you got a bunch of guys cooking on a old uh, engine heating up and they're just drinking I, I guess like it's like here's the junkyard we're hanging out we're drinking we're eating it's just the boys it's boy time all the ladies have gone home i guess and tj and axel have a conversation about two guys who are friends who now find themselves in this really awkward circumstance where axel says you left man you left we didn't know when you were coming back I'm with her now, we're happy, now you're back, and what? You expect me to back off and you just take her? Like, is that how this yeah, works? Yeah, we get this, like, Bobby and James from Twin Peak have had conversations like this and tension like this. Mm-hmm. We have the same sort of tension happening in Walking Dead, most recently yeah. and famously, yeah. where there's a lot of, you left, no one knew, where yeah. you gone, don't blame me. Yeah, it, it, it's one of those scenarios. This is extremely effective in this movie. Sometimes those plot points I kind of roll my eyes at, in this case, I really like it. I tuned into it uh, when I was younger, when I first saw this movie. Now as an adult, having you know lived a, a little bit, I definitely can see similar things in my own life that have happened where I'm like, oh no, man, I've been there, where you don't want to be mad at your friend. TJ knows that they're right. They're right. He knows, but he can't help how he feels. And he, it's almost like, I'm just so frustrated and mad, and I want to, what do I do with this? anger and 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 knowing something's wrong and wanting to do it anyways you can see that he's stuck between his head and his heart it works it really works and 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 for people who aren't into that sort of thing like me they don't spend a lot of time on it no and the way that it's portrayed and written is really really nice and i like it because you get the conflict you get that you like it's easy you don't need all this shit explained to you Mm -hmm. but when TJ comes through and sits in the bucket seat of that one car and Axel's leaning against the outside and he starts playing harmonica Mm -hmm. and then TJ goes to join in with him with his differently tuned harmonica, which actually they sound really good together and they're very good harmonica players. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a cool scene that way. Mm -hmm. But then immediately Axel snubs him and stops playing and sort of looks at him like, I'm not going to play music with you. And it's it's a small scene. It conveys so much about Mm -hmm. what how where they stand mm-hmm. in this weird triangle thing that I genuinely don't care about. But I like that they don't keep hammering at home mm-hmm. with needless dialogue mm-hmm. or overly sentimental dialogue. They do it in a lot of like small scenes like mm-hmm. this. It's it's honestly it's three scenes. Yeah. Like really. Yeah. Like but it conveys a lot because after these uh, I never once rolled my eyes on it or like put my finger down my throat at all. Yeah. 
it, it, it's, it, I mean, you can see that, uh, I mean, after Axel uh, leaves, uh, Hollis goes and sits down next to him. I really like it. It's a very genuine moment because it seems like, it seems like kind of like, yeah, so this is awkward for everyone. Do you want to talk about this? Do you want to deal with this? Like, what do you want to do? And, and trying to say like, he's your friend. He's your friend. He's a good guy. You know, he's a good guy. Why are you acting this way? And TJ being like, I know, I know, I know, but I can't. <laughs> it's like, yeah. yeah. So after this scene, which I, I love so much, I, I mean, the, the acting in this movie doesn't get praised enough. It's so good. But anyway, so we, we, we leave this and we're back to the horror movie. Thank fuck. So. As much as I like harmonicas, I need something to get killed. Well, poor Mabel, though. The sweet matriarch of Valentine's Day. The queen of Valentine's Day, basically. She is the queen of Valentine's Day. And it is a very sad death. She's human su- emotions. Such a sweet woman. But I can see it being his power move. He's like, I mean oh, business, guys. Yeah, I am sure. taking your queen. Yeah. that is, And it is definitely that. So we find Mabel at the laundromat. And uh, the place is decorated to the nines. And she's minding her own business. There's um, a really good move. There's a, there's a really nice tension scene. We see the POV of the killer. It's really good. Uh, we see his feet that's making a little too much Foley work noise. Yeah, but... which is weird because we were just shown. Yeah. We were just given a great scene with the mayor being basically terrorized by yeah. the killer. Mm-hmm. Who has plunked a fucking human heart Yeah. into... A uh, Valentine's box, a cardboard Valentine's box that you would traditionally have chocolate in, mm-hmm. and he loves his Valentine's Day chocolate. Yeah, he likes it better than Christmas treats, which is crazy to me because I was like, Valentine's Day chocolate is okay, I guess, but like cheap grocery store chocolate does not hold a candle to Christmas treats. My sister and her fiance one day had Halloween chocolate, which struck me as odd because usually Halloween chocolate is like chocolate bars, like normal chocolate. Yeah, it's not Halloween crunchy chocolate. bars and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah, they had a bunch of little ghosts. It was little. Oh, that's so ghosts. cute. I know it's so cute, but I was like, oh my god, that's so cute, little black and white ghosts. I thought it was, I thought it was adorable, and they're like, they were pissed. They were like, no man, no, no, unwrap one unwrap one and they're looking at me all like yeah go ahead you're not gonna like it so much once you unwrap it like fucking dare like they're daring you yeah. to do it they're like and they they weren't eating them at all they were they were pissed off at these ghost chocolates <laughs> like literally pissed off they're like open one open one go ahead well it only means suspense what happened it's a fucking christmas bell oh you see what they did there i see they just rewrapped christmas bells with ghosts we were fuck those fuck those ghosts yeah. They took you to the cleaners. They took us to the cleaners. We were pissed because we saw ghost chocolates and got excited. They were just like secondhand Christmas chocolate. <laughs> Speaking of the cleaners, old Mabel has now, uh, after after the, uh, the, dis- the discovery of this heart and the... The wonderful sound of it plunking back into the Plunking back blood. into the thing. The, the sheriff, the mayor turned their car around. Exciting a dog, which we learned was uh, not a stunt dog. Wasn't a stunt dog. That was that was literally a dog that they just. And that was my reaction to it when I saw the movie. I was like, oh well, why is the dog chasing the car? They backed too far into that guy's property, and that dog didn't like it. Like, get the fuck off my property. I really thought that it was a dog that someone had wrangled, and they were holding the dog back because they knew the dog was a car chaser. So when he would go turning around and making that squealy dog 
enticing noise <laughs> that the dog would go chasing because it just happened so so perfectly mm-hmm. i've driven in country roads where dogs chase cars and stuff so it looked really really natural but i couldn't see it having not been planted and part of the script but apparently it wasn't it was just a random dog there's um a moment in this film that that i love and it's mabel's reaction and i'm and i'm wondering I'm wondering if this was her idea, the actress's idea, or if this was direction. When the killer enters the laundromat and she sees him terrified instantaneously because he lunges at her. And he's dressed up like a miner. It's scary enough. She backs away from him and tries to block him by opening... The, the laundry doors. Now, laundry doors aren't exactly an impenetrable fortress, and she's opening towards them, so it's not even really providing an obstacle. But I feel like when you're panicked, you are going to, anything, anything, get something in front of me, please. It's like, um, back in the day, the old Orion movie, uh, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe with Dolph Lundgren, there's this one scene in that flick that I always remember where this big, crazy beast man breaks into this guy's house, rips the door off, and he looks in pure terror as this beast man, this fucking big hulking wolf man, and a bunch of fucking soldiers come in behind him, invading this guy's house. In his hand, Lydia, he's got a tea towel, and he throws the tea towel at the beast man and screams, get out of here! And just, the tea towel, of course, hits the, the, like... Like, I guess that's what you do. Like, I have a, an implement in my hand. It's a tea towel. Maybe I'll get the crit on his glowing weak point. Nope. It depends on the person. You it's know, true. There's some people that if you spook them, they squeal and jump. There's some people, if you spook them, they put their arms up and try and protect themselves. I was an elbow them, guy. They I can was... run away. Yeah, there's some people, if you spook them, you're just going to get punched in the jaw. I've 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 dropped two grown men in my life uh, in, in outside scenarios, and I wish I could say that it was a really cool, like, fight scenario it was one a friend scaring me from behind i elbowed him square in the chest and he dropped like a sack of potatoes and the other one was my own brother who jumped out behind me behind a door and i hit him so hard and he just crumpled so um sorry guys yeah so that was just her reaction and it very well could have been the actress's decision on the fly Mm -hmm. to no avail unfortunately now meanwhile when the uh, when this discovery, uh, when when Mabel's been attacked, we know that the the mayor and the sheriff have already spent a little bit of time trying to determine what the heart is. And apparently, it they go to a doctor. It is a real heart, and they immediately jump to the conclusion that it's Harry Warden again. And so they try to they try to discover what happened to Harry. They know that once he escaped, that he was put back into a mental institution. So they're going to contact that mental institution. And unfortunately, the woman has, who answers the phone has no record of a Harry Warden being at that institution ever. Now, I came down on this scene kind of hard, as hard as I ever come down in any scene, honestly. Which is never hard enough. It's never hard enough. I, uh, I hear that sometimes, so I'm sorry. What you need is a pickaxe. I do need a pickaxe. I'll come down pretty hard on that. I feel like 20 years isn't long enough to lose a record like that of a, of a dangerous homicidal maniac that has been put in there originally for cannibalism, has now escaped, and then killed two people and put back in. I feel like he's too notorious. It's too notorious. 
Like you're trying to tell me that they oh the like I understand that your defense and it's not it's good defense was that first of all this is not to, this is not a, an institution that is in town. Second, so there's probably people coming from it's a regional institution. It, it's a regional institution, so therefore they are people coming in from all over the place, and they are housing dangerous people because that's where you would put a dangerous person. There's all kinds of dangerous people. But I, but I was like, but like that. Like he's a killer. Which one killed two girls? Which one? Like I don't know. That's so many killers in here. I just can't tell the difference. You gotta give me some more information than that. Um, yeah, definitely in the 1960s, which is when he would have been put in there. Initially, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and even when I was at first defending her reaction, I was thinking about the 1980s. We were only one year out of involuntarily sterilizing inmates in psychiatric units we were still for the next five years performing without permission electroshock therapy Hmm. so they didn't really give a fuck about the people in there we were still chaining people to beds for days at a time in their own filth we're only really a year out from that um, we're only one year into having group homes and group therapies and not relying on chemical restraints, let alone real restraints, and having people in solitary confinement in psychiatric facilities. So we had only just been for a year starting to give a shit about these people. And now when I think about it, in two ways, I, I, I do see your point, of course I see your point, that he would have had a little more notoriety attached to him, perhaps. But now that I think about it in the 60s, it was 10 times worse. We're talking bedlam. They did not give a shit. So 20 years for a file to go missing, 20 years for staff turnover for nobody to remember this guy, definitely. Oh, yeah. It definitely holds water in my mind. Well, I mean, what you guys are witnessing now on the podcast is my mind being changed in real time. Uh, I do now, I, I with all of that information that you've given me, all right. I'm you, sure her reaction wasn't as abrasive in 1980. Because uh, I, cause she, she, okay, so it's not just me. She's really, uh, like, ornery, right? Like She's really ornery. But I mean, and by abrasive, I mean your reaction to it. Oh, okay. You found her explanation abrasive. Okay, 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 okay um, yeah. Yeah, you play that scene for anybody that is in the mental health field now or has dealt with the mental health institution or just health canada in general um for somebody who have to have lost a file is going to make anyone flip out because we have computers yeah because her her attitude is like he got transferred he got released or he's dead take your pick you got three options this is where this is where harry warden is right now the sheriff our mayor of course outraged by this and they're going to be even more outraged when they see because uh, because they they're all treating Harry Warden as back that as a matter of fact. I mean even even the 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 uh, coroner that they're talking to is is flat out. So Harry Warden's back. Oh yeah, jeez, we're fucked. Yep, yep. Well, we got to do something about it. They don't really. Uh, they're kind of at a loss because they're trying to figure out exactly what happened to Harry. That seems to be their priority for right now. Yeah, because they're like they're not dumb about it. They're not like, oh, Harry Warden's back. Not a thing yeah. has changed in twenty years. They're like, it's been twenty years. Yeah. What is he doing back? And he's left them notes about, I warned you to mm-hmm. not have a dance. Mm-hmm. And that's actually uh, really refreshing. And this is another thing that this horror movie does differently, but does well. It's the fact that it's not 
they're oh that's a legend don't forget about it it's not it's not non-reactionary adults quote unquote it's it's not the older generation pretending like nothing is wrong it's actually the older generation that is saying uh, okay we fucked up like w- this is extremely serious and the younger generation thinking that it's a story i mean this is a story that they've heard their entire life it's almost like it let's say nowadays if someone would be like wes we saw a white van we can't possibly have a dance tonight i'd be like white van really is this what we're doing because like every kid remembers that stupid story right i don't so uh there was an urban legend that's that if you saw a white cubed van you would uh, it was a child snatcher specifically there was some white van that would apparently roam the streets and steal children. And so when we were kids, we used to see the white van and uh, like a white van, any white van. It didn't fucking matter. Uh, but especially if it was a cube van, it was one of those like. Like the patron saint of plagues tour bus? Basically, yeah. yeah. People would be like, oh, the white van, and we would run away. It was it was like a joke that you were kind of like, oh, maybe it's kind of serious. We don't know because you're little kids, right? Yeah. And this white van story is all over the place. That's crazy. Huh. Our child snatcher had a, a burgundy like sedan, but oh. he was actually snatching children. So. Oh, well, there's that. Yeah, that's not an urban myth. Yeah, that was a thing that happened. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So now we're, we're coming back to the laundromat where Mabel is and the sheriff comes in, he is looking for her and can smell something weird, something off and sniffs his pipe, making sure there's no, uh, wacky tobacco, wacky tobacco in there. He's like, is it my pipe? No. The thing under my nose? No. Oh, there's laundry going. Oh, smell the laundry. Maybe there's something bad in it. Maybe like, you know, one of those things where the laundry sat in there too damp for too long and now it's all gross and mildewy. Nope. Oh, well, what's in this? He noticed one of the things that I thought was interesting that he noticed before the 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 dryer caked in blood through the glass was that he's like, wait, tick. One of these hearts is upside down. Like, he notices that before he notices walking past the bloody dryer. Crazy. But he opens up the dryer and, like a horrible jack-in-the-box, a body comes flying out. They spend a little bit of time on it, and this is another victim of the cuts, unfortunately, where you look at the body, and if you you could freeze-frame it, you can look at it real tight if you want to. But uh, in the version that we had, unfortunately, you're missing out on a lot of really... There's a lot of work that went into this. Th- this this woman has uh, had her chest completely ripped open, the heart has been removed, and the body is completely covered in burns at yeah, this point. Really it's, fresh, it, icky, sticky burns. Yeah, it's completely scalded. Yeah. So it's really, really, really gross. It's it's super gross, super graphic, and and you're like, wow. Yeah. And, and so you wish they would linger just a little bit on that, if nothing else, and to just see the work, because I can't imagine how long that took somebody. Mm-hmm. But to have it just kind of tossed aside, like, oh, well, no, it's too graphic, we got to cut it. And unfortunately, this movie um, was the victim of a lot of cuts, basically, because of the fact that the MPAA was headhunting at this point to make sure that 
these graphic slasher movies, which had gotten a really bad rap thanks to things like Friday the 13th, which is hilarious to me because the first Friday the 13th, they're like, oh my God, it's so graphic. I still look at that movie as like, well, this has been cut to shit. Um, And and so by the time the second uh, Friday the 13th movie came out, they were in the same boat. And and this movie, again, released by Paramount under the, the umbrella of these horror movies. So, yep, this one got completely cut too, fortunately. But it was really, really, really well done and very, very, very graphic because it wasn't just rated R, but you need to make some cuts before you release it. It was an X-rated film. Mm-hmm. There's no sex in this. Yeah. There's no titties. Yeah. There's no dicks. There's no vaginas. No assholes. Yeah. Yeah. There's no sex in this. Yeah. You know, the, it, 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 like, it's so crazy to me, like, having to bring a – like, it, it almost – like, the, the, the rating system that happened in uh, – and the, the, the panic, Siskel and Ebert, fucking disturbing trend of the movies on their stupid PBS show that they did, all of this fucking shit. That didn't really, like, galvanize the masses against horror, but, it like, you know, the, the, when the second – when the secondary uh, market came out, the, the video market, and then – filmmakers had like carte blanche to kind of release the kind of shit that they wanted to like whatever but when that started getting uh, like when film studios that were specializing in grindhouse and exportation and some skin flicks basically got shut down overnight because of this type of shit because either it was prohibitively expensive to go through the process of getting your films proved and even if you had the money you would see your films become unrecognizable through all the cuts. And when people go to horror movies, it's funny. Like, when you show people some slashers uh, from back in the day, people are sometimes so shocked to be like, well, that's not very graphic. Oh, they cut away from that. Oh, like, does this, is there anything that, like, shows more? It's crazy. Modern audiences are surprised that some of the most notorious horror films from back in the day really aren't that graphic. Not because they weren't trying. But because yeah. they were cut to shit. Now, fortunately, a lot of the the worst cuts have been revitalized in a lot of these slasher movies. Unfortunately, some of my particular favorites, like, it's gone. Like, unless somebody finds, like, in the case of My Bloody Valentine, finding a couple of extra reels of, of the movie, you can restore in a later release all of the great footage that we were missing, with the exception There's of... There's still lots missing, apparently, th- too. There is, yeah. But, I mean, at least we get, what, nine minutes nine back? Nine glorious, bloody minutes. But think about that. When you're watching a movie and someone says, you know, there's nine minutes of violence taken out of this. I know, there's movies that are cut that have 13 seconds missing. Yeah. And it's 13 seconds among three cuts. Mm-hmm. That's, like, tiny little slivers. Mm-hmm. that you're not seeing but they make all that impact you know nine minutes if they would have lingered on mabel's body in the dryer for nine fucking minutes you'd be looking at your clock and being like okay seriously we am gonna move it along a little bit yeah yeah she's dead looks good yep mm-hmm, glistening mm-hmm. but you know nine minutes dispersed among this film of like 15 second cuts and stuff insane i think it's insane and it's a beautiful thing that we have nine minutes restored but to know that there are potentially another nine minutes kicking mm-hmm. around somewhere you know what sometimes it'll it may never be found or sometimes like 70 years later they'll find some dusty old print like with the missing footage from metropolis where they finally found all the footage to cobble it together to make a film that makes sense. Yeah, an actual movie. <laughs> an actual yeah. movie. It could happen in 70 years on Valentine's Day Ooh. in Valentine's Bluff. 
Now, there is a really good shot where just before they're about to cut the body off, and the mayor is doing the whole, now nah, we don't want to cause a panic. Like the, He's like the mayor in Jaws. Like, like, just get no, no. Bring her out the back. She died of a heart attack or sleepaway camp. Like the, yeah, the, like any yeah, yeah. slasher where they want to keep the fucking panic down. Yeah, because and it's not like we want to make sure that Valentine's Day goes off without a hitch. It's like no, it's not that. It's like they don't want anyone to think that Harry Warden, a dangerous killer, is roaming the streets and killing people. So look, Mabel died of a heart attack. Cut her out the back. Let's not have anyone see the body. But I'm just going to take one more last look to look at it in all its glory, I suppose. And he notices that there is something in the gaping chest cavity of this woman. Uh, And he pulls out a card that has a cute little rhyme on it and says, if you fucking hold this party, there's going to be more deaths. And that instantly shuddered down. Your poetry is way better than Harry Warden's. Because Harry Ward's like, poetry sucks. Like once, twice, there'll be deaths thrice. It's it's <laughs> like it's 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 one stage up from an actual Valentine's Day. Like I chew, chew, choose you. Type. It really is. So it's, you're like, don't hold this fucking dance. I'm gonna kill more people. Yeah. That would have served better because, like I said, he's a killer, not a poet. True, but he's also like it's a theme. Like if you want like one of those shitty like boxes of Mr. T Valentine's Day cards. I pity the fool that won't be my Valentine. Like, like if these if, just roll off your tongue, they just roll <laughs> off your tongue. You got a lot of Valentines in your life. Let's. Yeah, the Spider-Man one. I'm hung up on you. <laughs> wow, that's mind blowing. It's cute. It's cute. It's Thank very you. you. It's very you. Thank you. Because listeners, he could have gotten these or given them out. I don't know, but each fits because he is a sweetheart. Yay! Um, I love to be loved. Now. This is really great because the the instantaneously the old guard of this uh, Valentine's Day bluff uh, town, we're not doing this. Look, we're not doing it as anymore, and they're putting under the guise of out of respect to Maple, no parties, no Valentine's Day. We're not doing anything. Look, the woman who was spearheading all this tragically and suddenly died. I'm not in the mood for any of your sh- uh, adult shenanigans. We're not doing a party anymore. And the uh, fully grown adults are like, "Aw, come on." Uh, when somebody tells me that we're doing something and then we're not going to do something, like, it's usually over text because that's how people bail on me in the modern era. But, I mean, I'm always just like, yeah, that's fine. But what they don't see is me frowning like a fucking cartoon character with, like, little bags under my eyes. And I'm like, oh, goopy dog. Oh, nobody likes me. I can't even imagine it because we're always sitting around talking about horror and everything's awesome. So, like, and we never, like, really necessarily bail on one another. And even when we do, it's like, oh, that's yeah, totally cool, man. And it is totally cool. So we're never, like, that. So, what you don't see is there's, no. there's, there's like, 20 to 30 minutes of me crying alone on the bathroom floor. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. I didn't think adults reacted like that. Or at least I'd like to think they shouldn't. <laughs> but, okay. Sure. But they do, this is like the only time where anyone who says that this is like teen fucking slasher romp yeah, have but, any credence. But, but yeah. even then, like, we're, we're kidding it pretty hard, but like, it's not egregious. It's certainly not, I don't find it distracting at all. And honestly, it's one little quick scene. And they do look 10 years younger. Also because the camera is I was gonna say, filming them from up on the top of the steps well, I mean, and they're all standing down looking dejected well, and droopy dog. He's like the authority figure yeah. up there. Now, in the meantime, uh, we're going back to our, our little triangle that's been going on. Now, after work, TJ has sort of uh, whisked Sarah away. 
on their own. Now, uh, Sarah's good friend Patty has been asking, who's uh, Hollis's uh, girlfriend, who seems to be channeling um, Alice from The Honeymooners to me, which I like. It's it's almost like a very vaudevillian uh, delivery of her lines Mm -hmm. when she's talking about her dress. It's like, Cut down to here, skirt up to there, I might not get out of here alive. A lot of people come from theater yeah. in this, in the cast. It's so great. It makes I, a lot of sense. Patty's one of my favorite characters, and she has one of the best uh, character turns, uh, I find, uh, in horror, which we'll get into when we get into that. I, I, I dig her throughout. First of all, she's adorable. I love her. So there's that. But also, like, her performance is a top-notch. She uh, jokingly postulates to Sarah, is like, which is going to be? Are you going to pick one or the other? Sarah is kind of in a situation where she also is, like, look, this guy left her. She's angry at him. She had to move on because she didn't know he was coming back. But now he's back and still wants to be with her. There's probably a portion of her that never really stopped loving him. But, I mean, there's also the fact that, like, she's with somebody else now and... It's not my fault that this person came back, but again, I can't help my feelings. There's a lot of can't help my feelings type attitude getting in the way of uh, logic, but that's just, you know, caught between your head and heart. That's literally what it means. So then after TJ whisks her away, he apologizes for leaving and she is able to air her grievances with him, not understanding why he left, not understanding if he was ever coming back and why now like you come back and you expect a relationship and uh, they end up kissing. And let me tell you something. Smooches does wonders for TJ's attitude. Because now he is spearheading the let's party anyways. And he's sitting at the table. He's not like leaning up in the corner, le- glaring at everybody. Glaring yeah. everybody with his moose head dangling between his fingers. So so they, they have an idea. He's like, look, we got the break room at our job. It's got everything. It's got video games. It's got a pool table. We bring some drinks. We bring some tunes. We bring some girls. Do I gotta fucking spell it out for you guys? A Valentine's Day party. Okay, thank God you spelled it out because I did not know where you're going with that. <laughs> Can you could you imagine? He's like, look, guys, we got music, we got beer, we got pool tables, we got video games, and everyone's just like leaning on the table expectantly, like, uh huh, uh huh, uh huh. It's Valentine's Day tomorrow, and they're like, uh, go on, you lost me, I'm almost there. Valentine's Day, right? You want us to work? It's like, so, oh, put in some overtime, may as well make some extra bucks if we're not gonna party. <laughs> that would be my answer. <laughs> That's the only real answer. No, but they're going to fly in the face of authority and they're going to have a party anyways. Honestly, they're kind of like, look, we're sad for Mabel, but Mabel would have wanted us to have the party. And this comes from the fact that by trying to stop panic from happening, disaster strikes. Instead of being forthcoming with these guys and saying, look, there have been, to our knowledge, two violent deaths. We're not sure who belongs to, the heart belongs to, but it belongs to somebody. Yeah. And... We know that Mabel has been violently killed. There has been a warning to, like, if they explained all these things, I don't think, it's a, it's all about, like, not trusting people's reactions and keeping things from them. Because there's no way these people would have had a party. If they had if, known. If, if yeah, they had known. There's totally. no way. But since they just think, well, it was. even if they laugh off the campfire story version of Harry Warden, mm-hmm. it seems that, like, TJ is the son of the mine owner. Yeah. And that is the same guy that owned the mine when... Warden was around. Yeah. He knows very well all mm-hmm. about this story. These people lived in this town and were children when this happened. 
So it's definitely part of their mythology. Mm -hmm. They've just, of course, been lapping it off. And some of them are like new additions to the town for sure. So it's not as like striking. They would have all taken it very, very seriously had they been told. No, I absolutely agree. Yeah. But instead, they, they decide that we're going to just throw the party anyway. Now it's time for our campfire bartender to, to with one more word of warning, letting them know that you can't do this. If you have a party, there will be more deaths. Is this a red herring? Are we supposed to think that maybe... I never get the feeling that like we're supposed to think he at, at any point. Is, yeah, because he doesn't is, have any like. Ex does he have extra information? I don't know. Not really. He seems to be telling a story that a lot of people know because everyone's kind of like that old story. Oh my god. They do light him like a villain though. They they they, they light, light him like a villain, like a creepy guy. He's kind of surrounded by some old timers who don't really who don't have any lines. They don't need lines. They just kind of look like gruff, big beards. Looks like a sailor, the guy with the big, big beard. Yeah, a little bit of California silver in that beard. I like it. But um, he's going to show them all, Lydia, with a fucking prank. A prank to end all pranks. Best prank ever, I might say. I, you know what? I think he would be inclined to agree. I think that what he should do is he should leave Valentine's Bluff and open up a haunted attraction. He'd be pretty good at it. What he does is he decides that he is going to scare the guys and, and, and their ladies with, like, what would we, it's like a marionette, basically. So he's... he's pop-up. A pop-up. He's rigged the door that when you open the door, a, a, a dummy, like, raises his axe. Yeah, he's uh, in like, a full outfit from yeah. the mine. Like, he's got his, like... Uh, oh, coveralls on and Cover a big mask yeah. on and he's got a pickaxe in mm -hmm. his like gloved hand and it's yeah. all like strung up by rope when you open the door it pops up and it looks like he's gonna swing at you and kill you and <laughs> he's so into it he like cause like he's like checking to make sure it works he's like <laughs> closes the door checks again <laughs> does it third time <laughs> and then he closes the door walks away takes a sip of his whiskey and he's like I don't know, no, one more time, one more time, one more time. It was, guys, it was so good. <laughs> well, if this guy wasn't so into his own idolatry, that he wouldn't have gone back to check his work again, cursed by his own hubris, if he had just turned away and walked away. But he had to open the door one more time, because that's awesome. One more time. So now it's like, oh shit, my, my prank done turned real. And he got a fucking pickaxe underneath his chin. Now, this is probably one of the most famous cuts in the entire movie because it's such a shame. Mm, I'd have to say that the other, the shower cut. Is oh, is probably, that is, is that I, what in more my people, opinion? Okay, I think. But I always, I've always got the the body drag scene with the eyeball coming out. I always kind of got that was kind of the showpiece kill yeah yeah but but no you're absolutely right the shower scene also could be considered it's great scene so like we'd have to try them like a horror experiment on like totally virgin audiences yeah we get like 10 year old oh no maybe not no, no, 10 years old. but virgin audiences of some sort they've never seen this movie is what you're saying yeah martians maybe martians not a lot of people have seen bloody valentine okay like, cool so we can just grab like groups of like random yeah. humans that have never seen this movie yeah and like show them the shower scene and show them the drag scene mm -hmm. and like the uncut versions and like just gauge reactions. We'll wire them all up and stuff and then mm -hmm. take like notes after like when you come out of a press screening. Yeah, mm -hmm. that sounds like a fun experiment. Even if it were 10 year olds. <laughs> so 
when the the pickaxe goes up through his jaw out the eyeball apparently we don't get to see it the eyeball dangles and then our killer will drag this poor sucker's body just across the dirt and i assume just get rid of the body we know eventually what does happen to the body uh in a later scene but for now it's just sort of dragged off but no pranks no nothing it's all good the the guys uh, are able to go over there and do their party and man they fucking enter that room like a bat out of hell just it, it, it's it's one of those things because you show the interior of the room and it's all quiet the lights are on it's all clean and then it's almost like just a party just barfs into the room it's actually kind of great because just all these people storm in all of a sudden there's like 20 people in the room fucking music's going foods everywhere fucking everyone's drinking like instantly instantly it's just like holy fuck this was like a ready it was like a pop tent of parties that's sort of like what happens when trauma takes their merch booth down at the end of a sunday at a con (laughs) that's kind of what happens but in reverse because they're putting stuff away instead of taking stuff out yeah Yeah, that's kind of exactly what happens (laughs) but it is choreographed really 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 well and that's like one thing about this film is that things are choreographed and written way better than you would ever expect for a slasher film which makes it hard to believe that a lot of people haven't seen it even like like barring groups of 10 year olds but the body discoveries later on and even the body discoveries that we've had so far there's a lot of believability Mm -hmm. one thing that we would joke about with something like friday the 13th is that like when is he taking time to drag these bodies around (laughs) or you know what kind of joke is he trying to make with like the, the, arra- the, the arrangements of bodies and, yeah. and things like that. There is a definite... There's time here. He has like overnight and the next morning and he's trying to send a message. Yeah. So the body arrangement is all part of that message as much as the guy who got the pickaxe through the eye was trying to send a message by creating a pop-up of Harry Warden mm-hmm. as a joke. You know, mm-hmm. he's trying to send a message with it. So the body discoveries are all part of that exact same... I told you not to celebrate Valentine's message. Mm-hmm. And he's got loads of time, so it's totally believable. As believable as this party barfing into a room, or as believable as when the guys first came up from the mine and they sort of barf into the union hall. Yeah. That's what they do. They just barf into places. <laughs> I like that analogy. Oh, yeah, it's a good analogy. I'm a smart guy. Now, there's... <laughs> I'm sorry. There's a lot of fun happening. There's a lot of festivities going on right now. Uh, our, our police enforcement officers are just hanging out. It's quiet night for them now. And we are also uh, aware that uh, as far as everyone else is concerned, this is just a happy old night. There's like nothing, nothing going wrong here. Yeah, they, they think that they're not having a party. They're not having a dance. The yeah. partiers are like, we're having a little party and it's a safe space. You know? yeah. we're at work. It's, 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 it's literally at their work. It's not even like it doesn't get much safer than a place that they spend every day. I mean, look, a mind shaft is not safe, but... You're above the mine shaft. You're in the rec room. Yeah. It's it, it's not that dangerous. And everyone thinks it's kind of fun. The ladies think it's extra fun because it, there's an old superstition that you don't let women in a mine, wherever that comes from. I don't know. but So it's actually kind of like the, all the girls seem to be kind of excited that they get to be at the work because I'm wondering if it's like, oh, they have their own jobs in town that they do or their students are well, – I'm sure they all, they're all, they all seem like they're working probably at this point. And – and so, like, the guys all go off to work, and you're just like, oh, they're at the mine, which maybe it's kind of this disembodied 
like idea of a place and they've never actually been there because they're not really supposed to be there. Yeah, and that so, makes sense. And so like it's actually extra exciting for them to be there. But our sub story is gonna go to a head at this point because you got drinking, you got ladies, and everyone's having a good time, so it's time for a couple of butt hurt dudes to just fucking make out already. I know, right? I thought you were gonna <laughs> talk about the couples disappearing off to go and try and fuck each other. Well there's definitely that But there's... no, it's my favorite scene where I just wish they would they would definitely, well, first of all, super hot. Second of all, um, they're not going to do that. But TJ and Axel, uh, TJ is, 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 is angrily playing games like he does. And Axel is pulling on Sarah and she's not having it. Because... It turns into a huge fight. And it's rightly so because it's been boiling over for quite some Absolutely. Time. I mean, like, they've almost come to blow several times. Once in the mine uh like in the junkyard it wasn't really like i didn't think they were going to hit each other but they split apart from each other they don't want to talk to each other in the mine i definitely thought oh man like they could easily start throwing punches um and this time is definitely going to be throwing punches axel loses his fucking shit when tj explains to braggadociously implies that sarah has chosen him and you're kind of out of the picture and you just don't know it yet so sarah why don't you just go ahead and fucking tell him that you don't want to be with him anymore and you want to be with me. Uh, she is like, like that is like, no matter what, first of all, she hasn't said that. Second, which uh, there's a lot of talking for her, but she kind of finds her own, her own self in this scene and says, I have my own mouth. I can fucking talk for myself. And like, even if I was going to make a decision, which by the way, you guys aren't exactly making yourself fucking enticing offers right now. No, neither of them from the get-go. Yeah. I'd have given up on both of them, even as which friends, is, which a is, long time ago. Which is what she is seems to be on the cusp of doing. And yeah. then when it comes to blows, Hollis tears them away, fucking... Uh, I it, wanted it to be an epic harmonica battle. <laughs> I wanted them to whip out their fucking harps and have at it. And sort of like Daniel Johnson versus the devil kind of shit going down. <laughs> well, I mean, you don't get that so much. You get uh, Hollis tearing them apart. Uh, uh, Axel is stewing away, kicking the door open, angrily holding a beer. Like, he opens the beer and half of it fucking flies out. I'm like, easy on the beer, man. I was like, first of all, the rest of the thing that I can, it's not going to taste great. You're shaking it up too much. Like, just... Oh, but shit, Jesus, they have enough moose head to spare. You see how much moose head these people have? So they have much. moose heads everywhere. They have more moose head than I have access to water. Yeah, that's a, like, as actually, moose head comes out of the taps in Valentine's Bluff. You don't know that, but that's, that's true. That's probably exactly That's probably true. true. I, I read it on the Wikipedia that. page. Yeah. It, it was accurate. Oh, okay. Man, what a mood killer. Sarah is at her wit's end. She, uh, everyone's, it's funny because Axel is definitely the one that threw the first punch. But people are, are like, seem to be more sympathetic to TJ, even though he was the one that got hit. But I was like, he really instigated that whole scenario. He got socked in the mouth for being a shit and shooting his mouth off instead of being calm and putting Sarah on the spot, like, make a decision now in front of all these people. Damn his feelings. You have to fucking explain it to him. I'm like, uh, dick move, dude. And Axel was, like, in the wrong for, like, coming to blows because that's a complete loss of control. But, but everyone's like, are you all right, man? Are you all right? Sarah gives him a hug and just says she doesn't care anymore. It's emotionally exhausting dealing with this type of thing, trying to choose between two people who you have genuine feelings for. Um, like, and she's just done, not surprisingly. He kind of uh, slinks away, but they have an idea, Lydia, to just brighten the whole fucking day. 
what if we go down into the mine? Hollis is instantaneously like, that's dangerous, no. And also there's like an aspect where I'd be like, no. Yeah, I would be like, no, like, too. And this is only like half the party because the party's like kind of dispersed a little aside from Axel storming off. Yeah, there's yeah. like a couple that has gone off yeah. onto the side to yeah, go so, and get so, sick. Yeah, so Sylvie and, Sylvie and her man, uh, Dave and uh, Tommy are checking out the, uh, the ladies. Yeah. Uh, doing their like bro thing. Yeah. I yeah. love their interactions together. Um, and... Uh, and, and and so it is kind of like, oh, what's going on? Now, in the meantime... To go down into the mine, drunk it's... and stuff is just stupid to me. And it does rub me the wrong way entirely because it doesn't take a lot of enticing. Sure, it's a funny idea. And then as the like idea gets around, it's sort of like, yeah, yeah, let's go into the mine. Let's go in the mine. It um, wouldn't seem like a fun time to me. I was like, I was like, the party, the booze, everyone's here. Let's stay here. That this is where the party is. It's like the mine is not the party, but I guess mm-hmm. again, it's it's giving it's affording these ladies an opportunity to go into the mine, which they'll like. We may it's it's almost like a, we may never pass this way again, and it might seem mundane to you guys because this is literally your job site. I was liking it to you as like if if someone was like, show me the back in the grocery store, Wes. I'd be like. Oh, let's get some beers. Let's get some and be- break into your store at night. Yeah, and and, and, and let's just have a drink. I want to see where they crush the cardboard. Yeah, yeah, like uh, or or like show me how you carve a watermelon. No, no, no. <laughs> I do that for over forty hours a week. I don't want to do it on my fucking days off. I don't even go grocery shopping on my, on my weekends. I just like eat what I have in the house. Because you don't want to even be near that place. No, I'm done. Yeah. I'm done. Five yeah. days is what that place gets me for. I'm out yeah. for two. Give me that. But you are explaining it. And because I'm of the same mood. And I'm also like just, just like doing stupid shit when you're drunk is fucking yeah. stupid. Yeah. Like what the fuck? Mines are dangerous. Yeah. Like <laughs> Super fucking dangerous. Stupid crazy dangerous. Driving a car to get there is dangerous. Yeah. Dumbasses. But anyway. But you are saying that, you know, blame is all on the chicks. I'm fine with that. I'm not saying blame it on the chicks. I'm just saying that. Nah, it's like, yeah, because the whole superstition of women not being allowed down a mine. Same thing as women not being allowed on ships. Yeah. Ridiculous. Yeah. But unfortunately, like people have like these weird superstitions. Uh, hopefully not anymore. I don't know if there's, is that yeah, it's still a thing? Yeah, miners. For sure. Yeah, yeah. There's it, girls underground. Yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, rightfully but so. There's not many male housekeeping staff in hotels. Not that it's bad luck, but there still is like a disparity just for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. There's probably still a hell of a lot more male miners than there are female miners. Yeah, maybe. Like probably a hell of a lot more yeah. just because of so many decades and centuries of men being these troglodyte underground creatures. Like Morlocks. Like Morlocks. Atomy knockers. They're probably exactly all dudes. So they go down into the mine. Uh and like i guess like they're just so fucking it's weird to me they're just having a good time but i guess it's Sarah's spirits she is pretty down because of this fucking drama just exploded all over the place and and once they get down to the mine hollow seems to be uh tight on the fact that now nah, we're gonna go right back up but they're like no oh, give us a tour i'm like oh my god fucking live down here why don't you so now they're gonna go on a deep tour on the mine meanwhile Back up to the party, Dave has stone away into the kitchen to grab himself something to eat. Gonna grab himself some hot dogs. Uh oh. Uh oh. Wiener water soup. Yeah, he is definitely gonna. He is definitely gonna get uh, 
his face pushed down into the boiling hot dog water. Probably it's a, another one of the cuts too that happened here because we don't see the aftermath. We don't, the unfortunately. Face. And that's one thing like no one really whines too too much about it. But I kind of whine to myself because I like scalded people, and I keep thinking of Halloween too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like scalded people a lot. Well, I like sleepaway camp. Nice scalding death. I oh, like yeah. I like a good scalding. So mm-hmm. yeah, we don't get to see the scalding. Also. There is a little meeting of lovers. In not exactly you're not down in the mine shaft, but you're definitely in the, the entranceway of the mine area where the shower is. Yeah, because the they're in are. like the break room. So mm-hmm. it is like yeah, where the shower is and where they would get ready and punch in for the day and punch out for the night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's lovers embraced in a mining cart with a itchy looking wool blanket around them. All the talk about the relationships, because like watching this film, it doesn't it's not cloying and it's not annoying to me, but all the talk that we've been doing about these this love triangle and all these lovers is just really driving me crazy because it's just like, oh my God, yes, it's about humans trying to fuck constantly. But I don't get that feeling when I'm watching the film. So you know what I think? We can have this for Canada Day, but we're just going to air it again in February. For Valentine's Day? Fucking right, yeah, might as well. But yeah, I, they're under an itchy wool blanket on a wooden bench. Yeah. That's hot. They're all, but they're all fully dressed. Like, nothing's gotten too sexy. The boots on everything. Yeah, yeah boots on everything, which was really distracting to me. I'm like, that's not comfortable to me. But, um, you know, and and uh, the fella is showing Sylvie, his girlfriend, how to bring down the uniforms with those that pulley system. Uh, really, really cool. But she insists that uh, what we need, a couple of beers, a couple of brewskis, a couple of cold ones. That wouldn't be what I'd want. I don't know. She's weird to me. But... She wants beer? Yeah. I always kind of want a beer. He has a condom. He shows her. Yeah, it's fucking time. Yeah. And she's like, no, I want beer? What the fuck is wrong with you? Anyway, go on. Uh, well, he goes back to grab her a beer, and she is left on her own. It comes a sequence that actually really terrified me as a kid, because it, it ramps up so quickly. And I remember there's a lot of little jumpies in it. Just She notices that something is amiss, something is wrong. There is definitely um, something happening there where her guy goes to get the beers. They don't seem to notice that uh, even though there is a boiled heart in the hot dog water, they don't notice that there's also a body in the refrigerator with his scalded face. So at least you can see that, that his face has been scalding. You don't see any heart extraction or anything like that. But as we cut back to Sylvie, she is freaking out because she's hearing noises and she thinks it's her boyfriend, but of course it's not. She calls out to the darkness. If you're trying to scare me, you're doing a good job. And then all of the uniforms start following simultaneously. And she is being chased, almost like trying to escape these uniforms dropping down. Because it's, it's disorienting and it's scary. As a kid, I found it the exact same way. And then, boom, body drops uh, of uh, our bartender. He has now been uh, almost like a fish on the line. Just been like hooked into uh, it looks like an anchor but i guess it was probably just what they were hanging more uniforms on now it's hanging a body and then she uh runs away from that and instantly grabs uh, instantly gets grabbed by the face by our killer he looks fantastic he's got blood on his mask looks really really good and it's a really cool camera angle angle of close a pov shot from him looking at her pulling her face away from him, carrying her away. You can tell uh, Sylvie is a very uh, petite woman. And we know this because, you know, we, like, A, her boyfriend was huge, but she's just very generally small. We know that our killer is pretty strong. He's holding her up, 
by her head, and she seems fairly helpless from this position. You see the beginning shots uh, when the guys first come out of the mine mm-hmm. to meet up with the girls and have some drinks that first night when we're first told this campfire story, mm-hmm. and he actually picks her up and kisses her like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like a horrible mirror yeah. to earlier. Absolutely. <laughs> I just liked it. It was a good comparison. I didn't think of it. We, we're, she's brought to the showers, and this scene also cut fairly heavily, but... We get the indication from, like, you, you see one of the pipes that have been sort of sticking out. It looks fairly sharp. She's going to get hoisted up onto that. We see her body get lifted into that direction, and then we cut away. Damn. Her God. boyfriend is going to come back, though, jingling his beers like it's a fucking rattle. And thinking that he sees the showers on, he's like, oh, yeah, showers, sexy time. Starts undoing his uh, shirt, comes in there. And he discovers his body. Now, a lot of the cuts in this, um, you don't need to see this. Honestly, the angle of her head uh, is really, really well done. It implies everything. Your mind fills in the blanks. The the the, the bloody water coming out of... Uh, the sound. The sound. The sound is yeah. beautiful. But mm. I disagree and would love to see this. I'd like a 10-hour loop on YouTube of it. It is really beautiful as it is with it's the sound specifically that really gets to me. Mm-hmm. His reaction is fucking fantastic. It is a sheer horror and it's not it's it's not really like that that manly cleft chin. Oh my god. It's not that. It, it's it's just utter like his mind is scrambling trying to he's trying to process. Yeah. What the fuck has happened? you want to talk about characters where the furthest thing from their mind yeah. is Harry Warden. Oh, completely. That was the last thing on his mind. And the fact that he just saw her moments ago mm-hmm. and they were all perfectly safe. And the horrific fucking aftermath mm-hmm. of what he's done to her mm-hmm. in the moments that he was gone. Yeah. It's f- fucking mind bending. So, yeah, I can totally get it. Yeah. He's like, you can see. Like, you can see, like, the synapse is just firing on his brain. Like, he's just like, oh, what am I looking at? It's utter disbelief, horror. It's fucking beautifully acted. That with the sound, the fact that it's in the shower, like, it's a really cool scene. It really conveys emotion. And, the, and the, like, the, the acting in this movie is exquisite. And the characters' reactions to death as they're discovering them is fairly realistic. I mean, even the discovery of Mabel is a little too stiff off her lip for me. I, again, I, I was like, you know, this definitely is a woman who was more than just a, 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 a earmark of the town. She was like your friend. And, and I feel like they're just, okay, everyone calm down. We don't want to have a panic. I, I was like, they should be more mortified, I feel, especially the horrific condition of her body. But I, I was like, this is genuine. Maybe it's the idea is like, we're old, we've seen more, like, like we can handle it more. Maybe it's that. Um, well, they were around when the original killing deaths were yeah had yeah, twenty years ago, and even like the mortician was all like those were horrible deaths, mm-hmm. and just from the tone of his voice and look on his face, you could tell that they found bodies in much the same condition. Mm-hmm. So that could be part of it, a little more hardened. But you're right, the reaction to Mabel's body was a little bit light. So while we're down in the, the the mines, people are having a good time. Now there's gonna be a little sexy, a little sexy time in the mines. Oh my god! We just keep talking about the sex and the sex and the sex. I want to get the guy with the pickaxe in the dark. That's what I want. 
a guy with a pickaxe in the dark. That's all I want. That's all I want. Bow, chicka, bow, bow. Oh, fuck off. I'm so sick of these couples doing the thing that couples do. Really. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. And I don't care that they don't, that, that has to do with them getting dead. He could just be killing them willy-nilly. Run, chase them through the mines. Chase, that is a good idea. Well, they got to split up like a Scooby-Doo, right? Except like it's a little bit, it's like the, the, the blue version of that. I don't know, Scooby-Doo. When they split up, uh, it's just a device in order to get like people dead, um, which is which is fine. It works for me. When the bodies start getting discovered upstairs, that's when everyone really really panics. Um, TJ comes back and realizes it's kind of like a discovery all at once. They discover Dave's body in the refrigerator. She comes out. Uh, the other guy comes in and he's he discovered Sylvie's dead. They're like falling on the floor in grief about what's happening there is a there is like a whole host of people there tj explains it like is told what's happened he tells uh tommy and everyone get get the fuck out axel is there as well they're like get the fuck out it's not even okay they try to call the cops there's nothing here so now uh, the, the phone's lines don't work so tommy just or tj tells tommy to get in your fucking car get the fucking sheriff get us help yeah it's an awesome reaction to it it's yeah. super realistic like most of the character reactions are in this film which mm-hmm. I really really love and I do love that like, there's not a hell of a lot of swearing in this movie yeah. but there it's get the fuck out get yeah. the fuck out yeah um, we have uh, everyone's sort of scrambling at once and this is like what I love is like these two characters that have been tense with each other the entire time for the fact that Sarah's down in the mines and they're worried about her they're gonna join forces and they're even gonna do, they're gonna like like, we have to go down to the mine and help her. Well, I help them, but I mean, like, they really, they're both trying to, like, save the damsel in distress in their mind. They even clasp hands. They clasp hands and, like, are super, like, okay, we're going to go down there. You're going to go this way. I'm going to go this way. And no matter what, we're going to get them out of there and everything's going to be fine for 15 minutes or however long it takes. I always just assume that scene is, like, well, it's not like they could film in the shaft as it was going down. And so I guess they have to, like, have that brief little powwow clasp their hands together and then just ride down silently awkwardly i never really thought of it but you're totally right that's exactly (laughs) what they would do like they're just going down like like not really looking at each other or just been like so you know what to do it's like yeah you you explained it like 30 seconds ago okay got it like 10 minutes later he's like so i'm going west yeah yeah go go down to the shaft like, that's pretty much probably, or, or it was just nothing. They're just, like, counting the seconds awkwardly, just hoping that maybe the cable will break and we'll all just die. <laughs> so when they're down in the, the the mine, like, they're trying to get out of there, Hollis, Patty, and, uh, and Sarah. But So it's kind of like, fun time's kind of over. They're not really goofing around anymore. And it's just like, we got to get out. They don't feel like anything is wrong. Except for the fact that they've lost two people. Yeah, and other than that, they're just done down there. Yeah, they're just done. They're probably out of beer. Like, (laughs) really, realistically, that's all these people seem to care about, so that's probably the reason they'd like to head out. They'd like to head out. Um, They can't really seem to find it, and as they continue to get separated, well, they don't get separated, but they run into TJ. TJ explains to them the situation that two people have died upstairs. Holy fuck. And... So they need to find their friends really fast. Hollis, like, is going to separate from the group. TJ and Axel. Uh, Axel hasn't found the group just yet, and TJ is going to go off in another direction, and they're going to try to, like, 
Meet up in the main shaft. Meet up in the main shaft. Oh, yeah. I love how often they say main shaft in this movie. He and does. He really as does. A, as a 32-year-old man, I'll laugh every single time. And I don't care. It's funny. I never noticed or cared until Wes was giggling away in the corner. Like, seriously. He thinks it's great. He's like, we're going to the main shaft. I'll meet you at the main shaft. <laughs> I got a main shaft for you. When did you see him last? He was in the main shaft. <laughs> anyway, the the couple last they were seen were in the abandoned area of the mine mm-hmm. in a records room, which was super creepy and atmospheric. I love the records room. I believe that's what it was called, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. The records room is like extra dilapidated and mm-hmm. dusty and neglected and ultra. It's the abandoned room in the abandoned shaft. Oh my god! It, it doesn't get much more abandoned than that. I know. When you're in a mine anyway, and you're like, oh, though that's the shitty part of the mine. You don't go into that part of the mine. <laughs> Hollis discovers our missing lovers that have been pinned between each other with a giant screw, a drill. <laughs> <laughs> not unlike the death in Friday the 13th, part two, not unlike the death in Twitch of the Death Nerve. You have two lovers pinned together through a single implement. My favorite. Mm, it's not bad. And Hollis then gets a fucking nail gun to the goddamn head and gets one shot, gets two shots. And you're like, holy fuck. And he still manages to, like, stumble out of there. Because I was thinking about it. I was like, yeah, you know, there's lots of stories of people getting, like, severe trauma to the head and not dying or still being able to function for a while. Yeah, you can get all kinds of stuff, like, driven through your brain and still function. If it hits right, you don't even feel pain. Yeah. <laughs> lucky. Maybe he got a really lucky spot. I don't know. But, yeah, uh, there's been, like, pictures of people with, like, iron rods through their heads. Like, the the one with the butcher knife, like, right in yeah. the head. Like, and the, the, yeah, yeah, that guy's alive. Like, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rebar through the head. I've seen a couple pictures of rebar through the head and still blinking and being fine. Having some, like, horrible problems. Aftermath and brain damage is a sneaky bitch. But I can, I, it's not unbelievable that you get this bolt in the head. Yeah, absolutely. When Hollis is by, like manages to stumble his way to the ladies, he keels over and dies as Axel finds them. Patty's reaction is fucking fantastic. Patty throughout the entire film has been sort of like this uh, loud-spoken, uh, confident woman joking around uh, and really likes to take care of Sarah, her friend. You know, when Sarah's upset, when this drama blows up, she's like, let's do something to lift her spirits. Like, she's very proactive in that sense. The second that her boyfriend, lover or whatever, has, like, fallen dead in front of her eyes, like, she falls to fucking pieces. And and, and it's like, don't touch him. Like, Sarah becomes, we need to be practical about this. He has a light on him. We need to get the light. So she's moving his body. Like, like Patty's, like, has these lines about don't touch him. When they're walking away from him, she's like, I don't want to leave him. The idea of leaving his body behind, she doesn't want to do that either. She can't go on. She's just crumbling. She's crumbling. She's under a lot of stress. So it's a really big turn. Howard, who's, like, been, like, this jokey character throughout the entire film, instant, even before, like, he knows people have started dying, he also goes into serious mode. He's like, okay, well, we're not having fun. It's not, like joking until the end, dying in the middle of a dumb prank, like so many characters that fit this archetype in slasher movies. It really is, okay, fun time's over. It's serious now. I'm going to stop joking around and I'm actually going to try to help. now. And both little things are really, really believable because you've seen just by the 
implanting of one or two words of lines earlier. Mm -hmm. Things like where Patty, you know that her boyfriend is the apple of her eye. And Mm -hmm. her feathers can't be ruffled, but pretty much convinced, is made fairly clear that if anything were to happen to him, she would probably lose her shit or decapitate you on the spot. So, of course, when he's killed, basically drops dead in front of her, it makes sense. So you don't, these, these turns are all very organic. Howard. He jokes around and stuff like that. He's annoyingly joking around mm-hmm. at all times. But when there's work to be done, he he does snap too very seriously and knows mm-hmm. his shit. So it is believable once again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, and, and you get a, like a rich sense of character. And this is one of the things like, you know, sometimes when modern horror movies get made and they're like, we don't have time for that. We don't have time for those. Not modern. I mean, like... Uh, I'm being unfair. Any slasher movie sometimes. They, they, we don't have time for characterization. We don't have They're time for this. They're more worried about it looking good, people looking hot, and it getting in the theaters so you get bums and seats and get the sweet, sweet cash. That's yeah. when they're worried about that kind of stupid yeah. shit but and like, not about making a good horror film. Yeah, but it's yeah. like, this movie's fucking 90 minutes. It's not like they had to make like a two and a half hour horror movie to get these things across. Like, I, like how many times do we complain about like, if they just gave a line, if they just did one thing, this movie does that. Yeah. Here's your line. Here's this. This explains that. This explains this. So as we're down in the mine and, uh, pe- and people are starting to drop off uh, pretty quickly, uh, both TJ and... Uh, Axel are being split apart like and you're not really sure where um, like this is where they're trying to play a game with you who is the killer we've seen when uh, before the couple got pinned by the screw we heard harmonica we know both these boys can play the harmonica Um, every time the killer is present you you don't see one of them but you, like any time that there's a kill, you see neither one of them, and then it's kind of like the fucking pokeroo, like oh, I missed him again. Like they show up off camera all the time. They're both dressed now appropriately to be down in the mine, so all they really have to do is pull off the gas mask and ditch the pick the pickaxe. And they can they know where each other are, so they can deflect right away to the other. So it doesn't help if you see one where the killer just was. And they say that the other one just went elsewhere, so it could have really been either of them Mm -hmm. because they're constantly deflecting subconsciously at times, I'm sure. But, like, you've never really given it any serious thought of Mm. this being, like, a whodunit sort of thing Um, because you know from the beginning that, okay, it's a mass killer. They'll be unmasked eventually, or maybe it's the ghost of Harry Warden. Who cares? Who knows? Mm-hmm. It's just a fun movie. Up until this point where it becomes extremely fucking serious because you're like, oh, shit, I don't actually know. Yeah. It's like we're running out of characters, and I'm still not entirely sure who is to blame here because there's kind of motivation for both of these dudes. And the fact that they're now in the mine. It's not like someone could just pop in the window or yeah. come in the back. There is no window or back for them to come in. Mm-hmm. They're, they're deep in this shit. Mm-hmm. And so they need to escape. So at this point, they realize that people are people are dying. It's time to get the fuck out. Shit started to go down when the the killer in, I guess, the scene you really liked was like breaking the bulbs and shit like that. That's my favorite. And, and stalking towards them. The killer looks absolutely, we haven't talked enough about the killer and how he looks. It looks fucking fantastic. Any other situation... Um, you'd be like, oh, it's a guy in a minor outfit, but like the gas mask, the pickaxe, the light on the like the, on the helmet, it all comes together for like a very iconic killer. And the time that we spend in his point of view, and the time we spend hearing him breathe inside of that gas. Oh, mask. Oh, that's such a great effect. I love that it too. Really is. 
Um, to so I finally see him sort of be a little angry. He's not being a ninja. He's mm-hmm. not just hands reaching out. Now we get to see him stalking towards them angrily, smashing light after light and taking their only sense of safety away. Mm-hmm. Scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and you can tell that whoever this killer is, they're a fucking big imposing. They're very physical. Like they're fit. You know what I mean? It's, it, they're they're big. They're tall. They're strong. Um, and they're fast. They're not like lightning quick, like prom night, where the guy's like like a fucking little spider monkey, just like darting around all over the place. But um, they're pretty quick too. So they're going to now escape up the ladder. Uh, Patty, not only on top of the fact that she's falling to pieces, she's also uh, uh, acrophobic. She's afraid of heights. So as she's climbing, she just can't. Axel is going too fast. She can't keep up. Sarah now, like the roles have completely reversed. Sarah is like, you can do this, like slapping you in the face. You have to fucking move. Let's go do this. She is now taking care of Patty and she climbs up with, it's very sweet, I like it anyway, uh, climbs up to her so she knows that she's like, I'm right here behind you on the ladder. You're not going to fall because I am I got you. Like, okay, so like they're coming up together and um, and then all of a sudden, shit, Howard yeah. fucking drops, hanging from a rope or a chain or whatever. The second the rope uh, tightens, like just blood splatters, Bukaki style all over Sarah's face, and then the, to tie it back into our to tie, previous to tie, episode. To tie it back into our previous episodes. Yeah. We like uh, synergy here on the Dead Air podcast, and we go back to the, then the body hits the ground like a ton of bricks. Yeah, and I joke about like about time he died because yeah. he's annoying and stuff, but he had really like proven maybe to be their only beacon of hope to getting the fuck out of here mm-hmm. fast and safe, right? But oops, dead. So he, he drops dead, and now they have to go back down. It's weird because, like, like Patty's like, we can't go up that way. I was like, just keep going, unless you're trying to imply that the killer might be up there. So I guess we can't go that way. But I was like, all right, I guess we go back down to the, ma- the, the mine. But I guess my brain would be like, like Happy could have died at any time. Yeah. And yeah. and like and it seems to be like they're trying to lure me back down into the mine where we're leaving the mines. And it's a mine. It's not like yeah. back into the other room. It's back into the mine where yeah. there's no escape. I think I'd like I'd rather have just kept climbing. I'd have kept climbing. I'd have climbed over the bastards. Like yeah. I'd, I'd want the fuck out of there. Yeah. I was like yeah. I'm done with being in this mine now. Oh yeah, completely. Um, so as as the the girls come back down get down they're uh they're making their way Across, we've lost sight of uh, Axel. We've lost sight of TJ. Um, and then, well, Patty just gets like a whiffer right in the gut. <laughs> just like a that. Whiffer right a whiffer? A big old whiffer. It's a baseball thing. Oh. Like okay. a, a big old swing. It's usually a swing and a miss, but this is right on target. Like pickaxe right into the gut. She dies. And now it's uh, the only ones that are left are TJ, Axel, and Sarah. Meanwhile, Tommy has basically gotten back up to, he's gotten to the main street and uh, it's actually funny. Jim told us an interesting story that was off mics, unfortunately, but he had said that during this scene, which is, it's a dead street with the car careens off and basically they're going to tell the police chief, it's his job to, to, to ring the alarms. Um, the street looks completely dead, but I didn't, and I just assumed it was because it's a small town and it was a late shoot. Yeah, it looks completely dead because yeah. that's. But apparently, just off camera, it, the streets are completely packed with people. Yeah. Um, 
so that was and, and they did this take a couple times of course yeah so yeah he gets to drive like a maniac for mm-hmm. a little bit and yeah it was like he's like it was like, the streets were lined like there was going to be a parade this is the remainder of our secondary characters um uh kind of like um in friday the 13th part two where like there's like a ton of campers and then all the like half of the more than half of the campers go party and then uh, the ones that remain at the camp are actually the ones that get killed. These guys have left the party, they're, um, and, and they're the ones that are like, basically, Sylvia's uh, boyfriend, Tommy, and uh, so on. And they're completely bereft, they're completely upset. Death has happened in this small town. These are people that they love, care about, see every day, and now they're gone. It's a very genuine reaction. Uh, Jim's performance, I mean, not just the fact that he's now our buddy, I'm assuming, mm-hmm. and he's and he's going to be on the show, but, like, it's really panicked. Um, and he had even mentioned in the interview how some people think that, like, oh, we were overacting in some scenes. I'm like, that's not overacting to me. That is as upset and you have to get every cop, everyone, go to the mine right now. There's yeah. people down there. That is as panicked and forceful as I would be. Where I, where, where I was like, not now. Right now, we have to go. You know what I'm saying? Like, it has to be immediate. I think a lot of times those reactions are coming from people who have never really had anything tragic happen in their lives. Ever. Or ever seen somebody in the midst of fucking terror or alarm. So, yeah. That, or they also really like those sort of horror films where somebody dies and like, ooh, I guess she's dead. We better go now. Yeah. What happened to your best friend? She died. And that kind of stuff drives me fucking crazy. I hate that stuff. Because uh, it's never appropriate. Uh, I, I was like, you always have half a beat to look back. I'd have like, never looked at the scene and and accused him of overacting. So it's just weird. It was weird to me that he said that when he said that because yeah. I don't read like a lot of like stuff about films online really. So I didn't know a lot of the ways people reacted to things. When we're back into the mine now, everyone's together. So we lose sight of Axel and we think that like he has been pulled underneath the water now. The, the ladies try to want to help him out, but that's not going to happen. Like TJ says, it's 60 feet down. Yeah. Uh, at this point, oh, well, if Axel has been remo- killed off like off camera, then it can't possibly be TJ because we've seen TJ right in front of us. But then after when, when Patty is killed and we think it's only the two of them, the killer does make his reemergence. And they try to get away from him by going up the, the tracks, the train tracks, or to get back out of the mine. They manage to... Uh, get on top and then what proceeds is a slow piece a slow speed chase up the mine shaft while they're fighting it's like shovel versus pickaxe which weapon is more powerful which is kind of cute because the emblem for the police and maybe for the town but the emblem for the police specifically for valentine bluffs has a big heart mm-hmm. and a shovel and a pickaxe crossed in the center that's and they am- do that many times during this fight that's amazing what i liked is that when tj gets knocked off by the killer sarah jumps off the tracks too and hands him a shovel like here and he like is gonna gonna fight him during the struggle our killer is unmasked we discover that it is axel himself that has been the killer the entire time we know through an instantaneous flashback that happens like I know you can read my mind, TJ. This is what happened. Or you would actually point it out more rightfully. They know him. They would have known this. So when they saw his face, it all would have clicked in their own minds exactly why he was doing this. 
One of the supervisors that was killed by Harry Warden. The one we see at the beginning when the story's being told to us, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was the father of Axel. Axel was underneath the bed hiding from the murderous acts when his father was killed in front of him and his heart was removed. And he stayed in a fetal position underneath the bed. With Trump. his little thumb in his little mouth. Mm-hmm. Covered in blood. Sort of like a baby Dexter. Completely traumatized. Now you might think to yourself, well, does that not mean that he would hate Harry Warden? I was like, probably, but also in a weird way, think that, like, Harry Warden killing his father in front of him defines who Axel is. That can twist in your mind. And if you keep going back to, like, who am I? What am I? What what does this mean for me? What does this mean for my life? If you keep going back to like this pivotal moment in your life when your father was brutally murdered in front of you and this Harry Warden was the architect of that entire scene, you could somehow idolize that person in a weird way, but more importantly, wanting to make sure that the memory of your father's death was not forgotten. So both these two things conflating together would make Axel, in my opinion, take up the mantle of Harry Warden. Because we're going to find out very soon that Harry Warden is no more. Now, which I love that addition. It doesn't just leave all that hanging. I yeah. love that. No, they put a pin in it for sure. They once the fight commences, it's in like the abandoned portion, uh, like in a small section. It's actually really cool because every time Axel uh, will take a swing of his pickaxe, he like is destroying more of the mine, pulling it down. Dust is flying everywhere. Eventually, when TJ wrestles away the pickaxe from him, he's got a secondary weapon. <laughs> One beat too soon, because it really seems like he had that knife in his hand all along. Uh, if only they'd given it, like, one more, a couple more frames of film so that I'd believe that he had time to pull it out of his pocket or sheath, wherever, or the back of his pants or wherever he keeps his knife, and have it in his hand at the ready that quickly, because it seems, like, way too fast. Well, it's important that we know that that Axel has been pulling this shit away because he gets bopped with some rocks, he gets fucking knocked on his ass, and then the mine starts to collapse in and around him. TJ mirroring the the death of the miner that caused his father's death, which is like kind of beautiful, tragic mm-hmm. and sad, but beautiful. And you're pretty much convinced that this is going to be the end of him. Absolutely. Now. TJ and Sarah bust out. Meanwhile, the 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 the, the mayor, the police, there's a posse. Uh, rounded up, including a guy with a shovel and a garbage can shield, which you blink and you'll miss it, but he definitely has... He's like a fucking Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles character, like Junkyard, or something like that, where he's like, I got a sewer lid shield and a shovel. He needs a pail on his head. <laughs> um, and his mom's apron tied for a cape. I wonder, like, that guy, he's just like, I'm going to grab this shovel. He's like, wait a second. What if I'm the one that confronts Harry Warden and he's got a weapon? I'm going to get a garbage can lid shield and my sword and my shield. I will vanquish Harry Warden. (laughs) Yes. Little did he know he 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 would never see him. Now, um, when they pass, uh, like when everyone sort of shows up and and, uh, TJ and Sarah are just done, they're like, "It's, it's all over. He's the killer. We know it. We're walking away. All of a sudden we see 
an arm, a dirty arm that everyone discovers is like trapped underneath the debris. This is a really weird cut and it is a little notorious in the film because while casual viewers would be mistaken for not noticing, what actually ends up happening is uh, Axel is pinned underneath this debris by his arm. He rips his own arm off and that is how he escapes. They look down. Sarah, when she realizes he's alive, she says that she wants to see him. She comes back. This has already happened. We don't see it. They've cut it out or like, I don't know, but like they've cut it out. And now uh, we see Axel in the, the peak of fiery madness under probably in tremendous amounts of pain. He just says... He has a little rhyme because he yeah. likes to do the little rhyming thing, even though he's a better killer than a poet, mm-hmm. about, so daddy's gone away, Harry Warden made you pay, is his final word that we can make sense of because then it just devolves mm-hmm. into maniacal laughter. Oh, and Sarah, and asking Sarah to be his bloody valentine. In the sweetest, cutest voice. I think mm-hmm. he also threatens the entire fucking town, too. He does. Yeah, because he's a real sweetheart that way. I wonder if he's going to come back and eat that arm. He might. Well, there's no one else down there for him to eat. That was a thing. Oh, I, was, I guess there is. I, yeah. I was like, I was like, ooh, there. Like to me, like this movie, like oh, like it, oh, well, that's a sequel. The killer's not dead. But then I'm thinking, well, where would he go? Yeah, nowhere. <laughs> really. Then the movie cuts out with the ballad of Harry Ward and a song by Paul Zaza, which kind of sounds like that Edmund Fitzgerald song, but um, a little tiny bit. Now that you mention it, it does. Yeah. But he did the sound for this film, and the soundtrack's now available on vinyl, reissue, happy day, mm-hmm. with art by Gary Pullen, who mm-hmm. used to do a lot of the reward covers and stuff like the that. The art is fucking absolutely amazing. Yeah, yeah. Every time, I, every time I see one of these horror vinyl soundtracks, I am a hair's breadth away from buying it. Even though I don't collect records, I don't have a record player, but I'm just like, I want it. The art's the, the salt point, too. Right? Yeah, I can definitely appreciate it from afar. <laughs> I appreciate all of Gary's work, actually. I have some Gary hanging up over there. Mm. Edgar Allan Poe. I was going to say, is it the Edgar Allan Poe picture? Yeah, it's the Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> it's around a corner, people. That's why he can't see it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. That is... Our Canada Day episode and our Valentine episode, so be prepared for a rerun, kids. Oh, yeah. We're just like, I'm totally going to do that. Yeah, to get ready for us to phone it in like you have not believed. We're going to rest on our laurels. I fucking feel like I've been down on a mine shaft. This has been a chunky episode. Yeah, it has been. There's lots to talk about. Like it was a, It's a really, really cool movie. It's somewhat overdue, but perfect timing. And it was triply perfect timing because we have... The chance to talk with Jim Murchison, so you'll get to listen to that. Mm-hmm. So stay tuned after our, well, after what we're going to tell you what we're doing next. Yeah, and you can get that interview if you're interested in more like Canadian horror and stuff, and love podcasts the way I do. You can always tune in to not the last episode because this will be airing next week or whenever uh, episode one thirty three. Yeah, I think that might be right. Of Vine Torture Cast and listen to them talk about Discopath, mm-hmm. which is one of the really more quiet horror releases in the past. Uniquely Canadian take on disco madness, mm-hmm. to put it lightly, with effects by Rami Couture. So definitely tune into that. My favorite horror podcast ever in the entire universe, Vine Torture Cast. But there's tons of Canadian horror out there. Seek it out. 
Um, there's classics that we've even covered on the show, Prom Night and now Bloody Valentine. On well, the last Mind Torture Cast, they talk about Black Fawn. So get interested in like things like Black Fawn as your favorite distributor or Raven's Banner. Mm-hmm. They have, yeah, I mean, Drownsman, Antisocial, Horsehead, uh, Bites coming out in August that everyone's been talking about. Raven Banner's been doing a lot of the really cool VOD as well. And mm-hmm. they were who were responsible for bringing us Baskin mm-hmm. on VOD. So... I love our Canadian releasing teams, and they have a lot up against. Like when at the beginning of the episode, when Weston said we're proud Canadians, I just about chimed in with the fact that we have horrendous fucking film release problems. We don't get a quarter of what seems to be available in the United States. Mm-hmm. We don't have Amazon Instant. We don't have Vudu. We don't have all these really cool services. We don't get Shutter. We don't get fucking Shutter. I wouldn't have Netflix if we had Shutter, because mm-hmm. Netflix is shit. Like, mm-hmm. and their horror collections are getting less and less and less and less. Not only in Canada, but more so because we have less to choose from. Mm-hmm. We have way fucking less to choose from. We don't have the same sort of tax grants given out fairly the way that they used to when they made this film, because tax benefits and free money for filmmakers is definitely a thing. In all countries, there's programs for filmmakers to get money to create films there. That's why there's all these New Zealand films happening, right? Um, But they're not distributed to horror, independent horror filmmakers the way that that we would like to see them. They're distributed to other people. Just like money for authors is distributed to people who write about prairie slice of life vignettes and literary work and not so much with the visceral horror right so it's really important to pay give attention to the filmmakers in canada that you want to Mm. see making more work especially when this stuff manages to squeak through the cracks because it is something of a minor miracle you have to be very patient uh especially if you're interested in physical media like i am uh because a lot of these uh guys and gals try to do the best they can with uh, film festivals, shit like that, just trying to get the word out for their movie, trying to generate enough buzz. If you know of a festival, share it amongst your filmmaker friends. Yeah. Share it everywhere because sometimes they just don't know where to apply to put these films in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or VOD, if if you know where to get something that's Canadian or something that's being distributed abroad that is Canadian mm-hmm. that's available VOD let people know mm-hmm. and, and and the the attitude that's I understand that sometimes people feel like sometimes Canadian productions can be a little bit lesser I mean certainly um, you're I, I get it like when you look going to the movies a lot of times you're looking for uh, the, the cinematic largesse that the United States can provide um, but I mean, we could always remind you that horror doesn't really require massive budgets and not only that, but, uh, there are some absolutely fantastic films that come out that I bet you, you wouldn't even know were Canadian and you would look at it and you're like, wow, that's a really great film. Jesus. Like, like, and you'd be like, no, that was Canadian. He'd be like, get the fuck out. Cause it's not about like fucking being on the prairies and it's not about like no RCMP anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, sometimes they hide the fact that things are, are Canadian, but like, uh, by by making things fairly neutral, uh, but there's a lot of really great stuff comes out, and and, and you know not like in modern times and uh, in the older times, there's a lots of great stuff. So definitely check it out and support it when you can, and make noise if you want this stuff in Canada. Make noise because it's a lot of arbitrary bullshit that keeps it from coming over to our borders easily. 
Yeah. Yeah. Share it. Share it. Like you're going to share this episode. Happy Canada Day. Happy Canada Day. Yeah. It's a perfect thing to share. When you don't want to share a whole bunch of pictures of people with their red vuvuzelas and their red and white corn chips and their weird little Dr. Zeus hats, flag leaves all over it or whatever, maple leaves. By the way, I will be on the hill uh, in my underwear and a Canadian flag cape with a giant marijuana leaf painted on my chest and a Canadian-themed cat in a hat hat. Uh, come and see me. I will be the guy with sparklers and big Jackie O sunglasses. I'll be at work. <laughs> what do we got next for them? Next, we're getting the fuck out of Canada. We're getting the fuck out of the 80s. Thank motherfucking God. But the 80s. Fuck the 80s. Oh, the 80s, Lydia. How about Hong Kong? Oh. I know you like that. a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my eyebrow is quirking. What's, what, what do we got? Dream home. Oh, my God. Dream home? Yeah. We're doing it, guys. And you might say, it's a dream come true. He's happy. He's happy. He's genuinely <laughs> happy. So, yeah. Stay tuned for our interview with Jim Murchison. And happy Canada Day. And now it's time for a Dead Air Podcast interview. What's up, everybody? Wes Deadair Nipe here with always... Typical Lydia. Today's show, we have actually something incredibly special. Because it's Canada Day, and we're Canadians, and we like to celebrate the fact that we are Canadians, and we always like to try to shine a light on Canadian horror whenever we can. Even though we do seem to really love New York. That's my fault. Back in the day... There was something that you guys have heard us refer to a lot as the slasher boom. And the slasher boom is basically anything that kind of came out from 1978. We're talking Halloween is the single point, even though slasher movies came out beforehand. Black Christmas, of course, being the coveted one that is given the title of the first official slasher film. And uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, of course, creating characters out of their killers. And then finally, John Carpenter creating the shape. And in then Halloween, it, yeah. In, so in these Halloween. are like theatrical slashers. Theatrical slashers. From there came an entire wave of horror films. Nightmare on Elm Street, April Fool's Day, Friday the 13th, The Burning. Tons of these movies you've heard of. Tons of these movies have sequels. And horror fans love to dig deep into the plethora of slasher films that have come out into that. As horror fans, slasher films aren't the only genre. It's a subgenre that exists within the overall horror rainbow that we like to call. But it's definitely one that people have a lot of love for and a lot of enthusiasm for. It's probably the iconic characters. It's probably the familiarity of the plot devices. But sometimes movies come along that do everything that the other movies are doing, but just a little bit better. And it just so happens that one of the gold standards in Slasher is a Canadian film. And it's not exploitation either. It's played very straight. There's it, a lot of the Canadiana sucked out of it. Mm-hmm. Because there's a lot of Moosehead there. Canadian <laughs> is sucked out of it. And it serves it well because we see so many horror movies that are filmed in Vancouver. They suck all the Canada out of it and they try and make it look like it's New York, New Jersey, somewhere like that. Mm-hmm. They try and pass Canada off a lot of the times as U.S. in horror film. Mm-hmm. Or it's straight-up exploitation. Yes, absolutely. But when My Bloody Valentine came along, a movie that a lot of people didn't even realize at the time was a Canadian horror film, it got shuffled into the mix of all the other holiday-themed 
horror films that were coming out at the time because of the fact that Halloween was so successful and then Friday the 13th was so successful. Paramount was looking for something else to add a holiday title to. The next big bloody thing the after next... Black Christmas or Happy Birthday to Me. Mm-hmm. Since we are doing My Bloody Valentine, which is the gold standard in Canadian horror, and if and that's not just coming from two horror fans, this is across the board from people who are intellectuals about horror. Yeah, academics would cite this as mm-hmm. one of the high points, one of the golden child of the slasher boom, for sure. And something that was originally forgotten until people started looking back, sifting through the wreckage of all those movies that came out. And as a rarity, because this is a special occasion, we have a guest. Now, we're not typically a guest show because we're not famous and we can't get anyone to come and talk to us. (laughs) But we somehow, through a miraculous conflation of circumstances, managed to get one of the stars of the film. Jim Murchison, thank you so much for being on our show. Um, always a pleasure. Uh, one of the one of the great times of my life was when I went out to, to Cape Breton to Sydney Mines to shoot My Bloody Valentine. My character says it'll be a blast. Well, it was a blast for me, and a, and a blast that I thought had been forgotten by a lot of people until uh, until about I guess just a little bit before two thousand nine when the remake came out. And I started getting rumblings that there were people out there that actually liked My Bloody Valentine because it was hated. So in all of that time, you didn't stumble upon somebody who went gaga over the film or someone that had memorabilia or walk into someone's apartment and see a big My Bloody Valentine poster? Um, no, not really. I mean, I mean, there were people that, that knew of it, but uh, a lot of the people that I knew were not uh, like steeped in the genre. Right. Yeah. So, so I mean, I people uh, were mainly live theater people. I, I knew a lot of live theater people, a lot of people in the blues scene, uh, people like that, and uh, you know, I and and certainly people knew about it and said, oh, you know what, that was you know, a couple of people that might have said, yeah, I, I always thought I thought that was a pretty good film. I was uh, you know maybe a little bit underrated or didn't get what it deserved, but I never knew that there was a groundswell of absolute absolute love for the film mm-hmm. until um, a guy from Australia named Barry Dominey Jr. found me on Facebook and he said, are you the Jim Murchison that played Tommy Whitcomb in My Bloody Valentine? And I went, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh, <laughs> flag's going up. Yeah, I am. Uh, why do you ask? He says, well, are you, you know, uh, and I'd known that the remake was about to come out. Uh, so the rumblings were starting. The rumblings were there. And, and he goes, uh, uh, are you going to be at the big screening reunion in Toronto that Fangoria is doing at the Bloor Cinema? And I went, uh, no, because I, <laughs> I never heard about the. I didn't know this was happening. You know? uh, anyway, through that, I started reconnecting with Neil Affleck and Alf Humphreys and Tom Kovach and uh, Laurie Hallier and um, mm. Ellen Udy. Uh, and we had all had, you know, uh, carried on. I guess uh, Laurie had done quite a bit of stuff. Uh, I, I, I gradually, after 
finding out I was only doing commercials and industrial films just sort of and mm-hmm. was starting a family just sort of said, ah, you know, mm-hmm. just got I'd out say, of it. Well, it was a nice thing and it was and a lot of fun and a lot of memories. But all of a sudden I realized there were all these people Then I, I got I, I started I did an interview for uh, Hysteria Lives where I found out there are three million like rampant fans in the UK of, of uh, on this Hysteria Live site that there's all these other things going on. I heard about they were they were wrapped around the around the block at the Blur at the Blur Street Cinema. Uh, the first time they tried to show the lost nine minutes. Oh yeah, um, I could see that yeah, being a huge oh, draw. So what they had found in, in I think it was uh, John Dunning's garage, who was one of the producers, original producers. They had found canisters of film that included nine minutes of lost footage that the MPAA had cut out. Mm-hmm. For those of you who aren't familiar, uh, when My Bloody Valentine came out in 1981, this was right on the heels of the sequel of Friday the 13th, uh, Part 2, which got a lot of heat by people about the content, and it was uh, egregiously cut. Paramount was also doing My Bloody Valentine, and so when they decided to release the slasher, switch it to a holiday-themed title, um, it was cut very, very heavily, and when they found this extra footage and then eventually it became re-released on DVD just in time for the remake to come out, it was a revelation for people because... Well, they'd restored about three minutes of footage to keep it from garnering a video nasty status. And that's the X crazy. Rate had an X rating. It had an here. X rating. But when you look at some of the, the, the special effects that are on the movie, some of the deaths... It's pretty great. Like, it's fantastic. As horror fans, we're just like, oh, no, show us more. But yeah. I could see how maybe the general audience... Did you know at the time that it was probably going to be a... Did you have any idea that it was not only going to be a hard R, but it would get so cut? But No, I, I didn't I didn't know that. I mean, uh, my, my memories are of, of uh, being uh, on the set when we're doing the scenes at the mine. Where I, I was involved in the party room in the mine. I didn't yeah. actually go into the mine, mm-hmm. although I... As a prep for it, and this is another thing that I think made it really great that gave, and I really credit the producers and George for this. We all went down into a working mine, 26. I was basically a seven mile trip, a mile oh, and wow. a half under the sea, yeah, uh, surrounded by dust, totally exhausted. Yeah, uh, I came up out of that, and I just said, if we get a tenth of that into this film, yeah, it's good because to my mind, the star of the film is the mind and oh. Harry. And it helps yeah. you all get into that mindset whether yeah. you're going to be in those scenes or not. You all really understand where Harry's coming from and right. you really understand that the terror of mm. being chased. Yeah, in uh, like I mean, that. it was, uh, I'm uh, Keith, uh, Keith Knight, uh, the funny thing, I'm talk- I talk a lot about Keith and, and, and Alf and, and, um, and Neil. When I moved from Montreal to Toronto, I spent a certain amount of time uh, when you're getting started as an actor, you find roommates. All three of those guys were my first roommates in Toronto. Really? Yeah. So I mean, we were already close. I mean, the minute we, the minute you get a bunch of twenty-something, you know, kids doing a, a pretty exciting, and I call twenty-something kids now because well, I'm sixty now. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I guess I thought I was I'd already been through a lot of the ropes, having you know, you know, had my my three other films that had busted and I could tell good when I saw it. And I actually thought, you know what, this is pretty good. Yeah. Uh, I didn't think that in Crunch, which was supposed to be like an animal house, I didn't think that in the other things. This one I actually thought, 
it's pretty neat. We actually read it, at, uh, sat around, did a read-through. We've actually gone into the mine. Mm-hmm. We've actually got a sense of what this community is about and what this experience of being uh, basically locked underground for eight hours a day is like and what that might do to you um, and how that might affect you. And then you couple a methane explosion. And then when they were shooting, they were actually... We're always testing for methane. Yeah, uh, yeah to keep the voltage yeah. of the light bulbs yeah. low and yeah. things like that. Yeah, Rodney Gimmons had to, had to like do a lot of the stuff with, and I remember Barry Lyndon. They did something like that, uh, which was a, a big budget film, and they made a they got a whole bunch of press for using limited light. But actually, Rodney Gibbons uh, on our little Canadian film <laughs> had already figured out a technique for for filming on under extreme low light. Uh, that's one of the things that people always talk about. The two main things that people talk about when they're talking about My Bloody Valentine is one, the aesthetic. Everybody, of course, praises the fact that, wow, it looks just like a real mine. And and that really comes across on film. The second thing, which is such a revelation that some of these actors were your uh, roommates, was that it's the camaraderie between the characters. The characters, it feels like people who work 10 hours a day down in a mine together, shoulder to shoulder. Yeah. The, the you know like um and they and they're so elated to be out of it, and it's party time, and they're with their girls, and everyone just seems so into each other and familiar with each other. Even mm-hmm. the older cast members, like it's a real sense of a community, and so that yeah. read through must have really helped for that. Like just getting everyone in the same room together, talking to each other, like so you're not really acting in front of strangers. Yeah. No, it was kind of instantaneous. And, and I got to say, uh, we I hadn't seen many of the people, uh, even the people that I'd stayed fairly close with. I still hadn't seen them for about 20 years when we went to Cherry Hill and did the, fir- uh, the, the first really big reunion. There had been some, I guess, in, in Toronto with the actors that were in Toronto. But this was the first time that we'd gotten, you know, the L.A. actors, you know, Laurie and, and, uh, and Len and Rob up, uh, Rob Stein, uh, and Peter Cowper, who lives in Colorado now, he's a um, massage therapist and carpenter. And mm, all this. Cool. But I'm, and I mean, and and I remember Peter saying after we got it, we got in a panel, we just started talking. He says, "I don't think we've missed a beat." He says, "It's like yesterday. It was just, <laughs> it was the same sort of thing. It was like instant fusion all over again." It makes all of this yeah. um, reunion stuff so much easier when you all just slip back into conversations. Oh, oh yeah, I mean, there were there were things like I remember when we were getting the the. The uh, light packs to go down into the mine, and they rip one out of uh, out of uh, Alf Humphrey's hands because he had pack number thirteen. I said, "Don't you go down there with that one, by you know?" And and, and Alf is going like. Why do you have one that says 13? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I had forgotten all about that. And Alf remembered that. So we were like, all of us remembering different things when we got back together years yeah. later. And it was like, you could see the others like, oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot about that part, you know? And so it was like, <laughs> it, 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 it was a party. I mean, it, it really is. Uh, the, 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 the fans added a, a heck of a lot to it. Oh, my God. But, and priming everyone, asking about things that no one has thought about for so long. Yeah. And then you all have... 10 different stories yeah, yeah to yeah. you know help feed that yeah, fandom yeah, too that yeah, it totally mm-hmm. does because so many people know every in and out of every single film because my bloody valentine sat dormant in right. a way for so long mm-hmm. it's a whole new mind yeah when i first started signing things people were uh, uh there's a one of these things just before my best friend in the film dave gets his his face boiled up yeah the hot dog um, water yeah. uh he, uh, I say, 
you're looking pretty good, baby face. And I give him a little slap. And I forgot I said that line. And somebody, <laughs> and people were coming up. And I said, well, what would you like me to sign here? And he goes, you're looking pretty good, baby face. And then his name, right? And I'm going like, like, what is that? <laughs> he says, I know it sounds weird, but it's just one of your favorite lines in the movie. And I went, oh, thank you. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Good thing you're an actor. Jeez. Yeah, I said, how many times have you seen the film since? I hadn't seen it at all for probably around 22 years. I, I mean, I, I remember very well. It was uh, it was February 13th, 1981. Uh, and uh, that's the other thing. From conception of this film to final print mm-hmm. with nine minutes of cuts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Started as a concept idea like July of 1980. And it was final print on... at you know, February 13th, 1981. That's that's incredible. I mean, yeah. it's a good thing everybody was young, including George. George was only, the director was only what, about three or four years older than me. Yeah, okay. So, so those, those are long days. Yeah. Not everyone's high energy, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's not a docile movie. I mean, you, like, you guys, like, I couldn't imagine, like, what are you on, like, hour 12 of a, of a shoot? And you're just like, party, party, have fun. <laughs> yeah. You're having a good time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you look at your, yeah, yeah. When I remember when I was first in that. So the first time I saw it uh, was Friday the 13th, uh, February 1981. Nice. And, uh, and the next day, of course, was Valentine's Day. So they opened it. So it was kind of like, oh, it all so, so appropriate, right? Um, and, uh, and they had to get it out for that. For that week and and uh, i found out about this later i didn't know at the time of course george gets a call we got and this is when canisters of film would be sent back and forth across the border you yeah know? and it was like uh okay um here are the edits that you have to you have to do you have to cut nine minutes of violence the film is fine but we don't want any of this violence yeah which is for a slasher film a bit of an odd request. Yep. Put it mildly. So I mean, and, and that's why when I look at even the, the cut version mm-hmm. of Sylvia's scene uh, for, in, in the shower head. in the shower, yeah. uh, just the the genius of it. Every place that we shot, except for one small little set that was part of a mine. Mm-hmm. were actual places in Sydney Mines. Uh, mm-hmm. The bar was an actual bar in Sydney. I can't mm-hmm. remember the name of it, but it was mm-hmm. an actual bar. Yeah. Uh, you know, the laundromat was a real laundromat. The all of this, all of the the, the mine was a real mine. Now, we, I remember when we were in Cherry Hill, there was the there were eight of us, and then there was one guy there from the remake. Oh, cool. oh okay. Chris Carbaugh, who was yeah. the actual, he was the miner, he was the Peter Cowper, he was the, the before being unmasked, the guy that did all of the, the mm-hmm. real heavy lifting and the stunt work for mm-hmm. uh, for the character. He was the mm-hmm. shape. Oh. Yeah. 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 He yeah. was Harry. Yeah. 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 Or what? I think they still were saying Harry Warden in the remake. I've only seen the remake once. Uh, yeah, I believe you're right. And I hadn't seen it when I was down in Cherry Hill and everybody wanted to know what I thought of the remake. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That would be a big question, yeah, yeah. especially for horror fans, because yeah. remake, that can be a dirty word yeah. to some of them. Yeah. So we would say, well, we haven't seen it, but what did you think of the remake? <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, and then we were getting these, third, like, uh, a couple of people liked, liked the remake as much, and one person we met liked it better, but a lot of them were really incensed. Yeah. It's, it's, it's sensitive for people. I think, I saw the remake when it came out. Um, a lot of my friends... 
I, I, I remember getting a bunch of people to go with it because uh, it was a bit of a novelty. Uh, My Bloody Valentine 3D was with the new wave of 3D films coming out. Mm. It was one of the ones that was dedicated to the, the, the 3D technology filmed to be in 3D. Uh, but I brought a bunch of my friends uh, to go, and we all went, and my, and I was just like, oh, I, I was kind of like, oh, I don't know if it's going to be like the original. They're like, original? I'm yeah. like, yeah. Uh, and, and I was like, what? Like, I had like one of those, what, what? And and I we were already <laughs> on our way to the theater, and I was like, turn it around, turn it around. We got to watch the original first before we go and watch the remake. Yeah. Um, the remake is fine, but like, uh, like I, I say with all... Um, love and respect to people that are like producing these these remakes. It is not going to stand the test of time. People who are interested in horror are going to go back to 1981 100% of the time. It's just mm. a dicier situation with My Bloody Valentine because the original is so goddamn that, good. That's it. Right? And even with the cuts that you were talking about, Sylvie's scene, for example, it's brilliantly shot. And that was one of the things that I always thought about it, even the cut version. Because, Len, let me tell you, sometimes the cuts, in when the MPAA gets their, their mitts on something, the cuts can be brutal because oh, it's devastating to the plot so many times. And um, and and I mean, yeah, there was a, a few things lost uh, for audiences with My Bloody Valentine, uh, the cannibalism, uh, arms getting ripped off. Like, there's obviously it, like mm, yeah. the, the the ending can be a little bit more ambiguous for some people who have not who aren't familiar. Right. But the cuts were very well done it wasn't it wasn't an example of 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 uh, directors and editors being like well fuck this fine and just aggressively cutting things because Mm. they're frustrated with the whole process sylvie scene is still completely workable and your mind fills in the blanks all the other death scenes are the exact same way there's no cut where i'm like oh that was a or what happened yeah Yeah, Yeah. that was a jumpy cut and it's a shame that they never found the lost footage for uh the Mike and Harriet killing. Uh, the, 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 the double, Mike and the, Harriet get Were you there when it happened? Like, did you get to see a lot of these things that were cut as they were filming? Uh, some of them, I mean, because a lot of the a lot of the stuff, a lot of the killing scenes, I I didn't witness a lot of it. The the one that I really remember is Happy. Because uh, Ken Diaz was boiling blood on a hot plate across the street from where they were doing the hat, and and I had Ilan Yudi and and. Uh, and, and Gina Dick, uh, I say, I, I paused before her last name because she had three different names during her acting career. She was Gina, she was Gina Massey on High Hope. She was Gina Dick on Our Movie. And she was Gina Green in, uh, she was Gina Green in High Hopes. Anyway, she had three different, uh, she kept changing her last name, uh, which I, I, I don't know quite why. We call her Gina Massive Green Dick on, uh, because we, we made fun of it on the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that, don't you? <laughs> oh, Gina. <laughs> so, sorry, Gina. Uh, anyway, I saw Gina again a couple of years ago, and I, uh, like I said, I see a lot of these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I met Paul Zaza, who is, did the score, the score yeah. for the yeah. first yeah. time about a year and a half ago at a Fangoria interview that uh, where Neil and myself and Lori and Elaine and... Uh, uh, George and Paul were at, and, and Bob Presner, our line producer. Mm. So they did, Fangoria does a lot of stuff mm. uh, to keep this movie high profile and promoting. They have, I even have a copy of a magazine where it's just like front cover uh, of the original My Bloody Valentine, Harry Warden stuff. Uh, retrospect uh, was done about three or four years ago. Oh, cool. huge, huge fans. And there's such a base of Fangoria people. Yeah. 
that had been from Canada. So there's like a mm-hmm. small Canadian connection yeah, yeah, with Fangoria yeah. headquarters. So of course they're going to yeah. really amp that up yeah. for mm-hmm. sure. But so, yeah, so yeah. you're talking about um, some of the kills that we didn't see that were cut or some of the things that were yeah. put back in in the uh, fabled nine minutes. I digressed again. Yeah, I'll get That's back okay. to I'll get back to the, the, the happy thing. Because Happy, uh, Jack Van Evero, who played Happy, was walking around with the prosthetic, like the pickaxe and the eyeball hanging out, and like we would be chatting, and he, and he was and he was there, right? Yeah. He just shot the scene, the final, uh, you know, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Mouth open, pickaxe coming up through the chin and the and, and the eyeball. Mm-hmm. So he had all that stuff on, and he's walking around. Meanwhile, there's a exact. Uh, body double of him for the Harry dragging along the mud, and that's going the other way. <laughs> a pot of boil. Ken uh, yeah, Ken Diaz from Berman Studios has a pot of, of of blood boiling on a hot mm-hmm. plate for other stuff that's coming up, and they're doing a reverse. So this is all being shot right at the mine, at the Princess Mine, and they're doing a reverse. So they have to, we have to be in dark, but we didn't get the radio signal of that. So all of this is happening. All of a sudden, blackout and fingernails in the, from lovely women, but with long fingernails into both sides of my forearms oh, yeah. and yeah. screams, blood curling oh screams. Oh my God. Would so, shock people, yeah, of yeah, course, because yeah. you've got these bloody gentlemen yeah. walking around, their eyeballs hanging yeah. out and blood <sighs> boiling and, oh yeah. And Jack was, Jack was a scream. I mean, I, I, I we had to retake several of the Jacks because we were just like, where would you make fun of you bloody assholes or whatever you call this? <laughs> and, and, and every time was just like... <laughs> well, that camaraderie and the comedy that's in the yeah. film anyway yeah. and everyone hijinks and sleeplessness yeah. probably oh, God, have yeah. infected yeah. you yeah. all. Yeah. So everyone's yeah. getting a little goony. Yeah. I could see that happening yeah. a lot. So that, I mean, that's the, that's the real uh, killing scene that I remember a lot. I remember, I remember, I remember um, the faux killing scene where... Uh, where Alf covers, who played uh, Howard, covers his head with blood and falls into the uh, oh, mayor's yeah, yeah, arms yeah. because uh, he had to keep that blood on all through lunch and he was starting to get a little bit of a headache, you know, because it's drying up on his head and, they, mm-hmm. you know, you got to, and you're wearing an apron so that you don't. Mm-hmm change the blood pattern by spilling the spaghetti on you or whatever it is that you're eating <laughs> yeah. for lunch right yeah. uh, so there's a lot of a lot of a lot of that going on and of course and every time that the cameras stop where even if we're not shooting that day we have to be ready for weather cover if they're mm-hmm. doing outside scenes they've mm-hmm. got indoor scenes that you might be called on so you're always staying with and not a, we didn't have all have cell phones uh, nobody had a cell phone yeah, yeah. in 1981 yeah, so you had to stay within um, shouting distance. So you distance had to be stay within phone. a phone or a, a, a production assistant with a walkie-talkie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of time we were spent in, like, we'd pick one room to go into to watch TV or, or play music or, uh, you know, and I bought the tapes of Men of the Deeps because... Mm. Uh, I just wanted to. I just wanted to hear songs like "Dark as a Dungeon" and "Little Pinky Engine" and all the minor tunes, so I could feel like. Her. And those are Men of the Deeps are Cape Breton uh, singing mm-hmm. minors, so uh, it's definitely you know kept that feel. Uh, the funny thing is that we. I, I. I mean, a lot of people say, "Well, we didn't hide our Canadian accents." Uh, I don't particularly think of myself as having not certainly not a maritime accent, although oh, I was yeah, born yeah, in yeah. the Maritimes. But a lot of the a lot of the other uh, like the coroner I remember 
when I saw the film, going like, oh, they got a, they got a local for that one for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you can sort of tell, but it's not, yeah, super apparent it, either. And yeah. um, I was reading that it might have not been as apparent because there weren't as many Canadian films. People weren't big fans of Degrassi Junior High. No, they yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. there wasn't Corner Gas or any of these other... Canadian sitcom Red Green Show yeah Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that's syndicated since then that's become wildly popular because Mm -hmm. I mean uh, most of the people that were known as Canadian performers were making it in American particularly Saturday Night Live and uh, you know where you had your Aykroyds and uh, yeah yeah. Or even looking back to like old crooners, Paul Anka. You don't listen to yeah. Paul Anka and yeah. think he sounds Canadian whatsoever, mm-hmm. no. like at no. all. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really enter the mind the way that Ken exploitation and Canadiana has. Yeah. Yeah. Red Green is a great example of that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No real, aside from the Moosehead beer, yeah. which probably would have seemed outlandish to an American audience or whatever, international audience, because yeah. it was released internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of Moosehead beer on that. Uh, my understanding is that shortly after that, Moosehead did release uh, uh, their beer into upstate New York as an import in a lot of other areas. And it became, uh, within about, they said about two or three years after the movie came out, it was the number one selling Canadian export in the United States. Really? So, uh, and there's still uh, fans that insist that you gotta, you, you gotta, you, you've got to have a Moosehead beer when you watch My Bloody Hand. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be down with that. If you don't have a Moosehead beer in your hand, you're not a real fan. You know? It's funny, it's like when you're watching the film, you definitely, yeah, definitely, you see the guys and the, and the girls, yeah, you're drinking Moosehead, but it's the scene in the laundromat where there's just a big old case of Moosehead <laughs> yeah. on the table. You know. I'm like, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah Product placement, and, and and I mean, and and they didn't. It was not as common a thing to negotiate for product placement and get a lot of money back from it. I mean, yeah. uh, from what I understand from George, they were pretty much running out of budget, so they said, "You give us two cases of Moosehead a day, and we'll make sure that it get it gets into the film." That's not too bad. That's not like you know, you're not. They're not having truckloads of it dropped yeah, off yeah, so that everyone's yeah. like so sick of Moosehead yeah. or anything like that. And it's just enough. It's only really noticeable in a couple scenes. It's, yeah. We were talking about that with the stuff where there's product placement for Coca-Cola. And I was wondering, is it accidental? Did they ask permission? Because it wasn't like such a big thing back then. Mm-hmm. Two cases a day for a mm-hmm. little product yeah. placement. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's like in Black Christmas, they're drinking uh, 50. And I and I and I really that was like my dad's beer. So every, yeah, yeah. like when I watched uh, that, I was like, oh my god, they're drinking. They're drinking. Out, of, out of stubbies, the old stubby <laughs> bottles. Yeah, I know. I uh, yeah, I remember. I remember the day I used to go into the Pierrefonds Tavern, and I believe I was legal drinking age in Quebec. Yeah, maybe or may, close anyway. <laughs> close and you order, you know, three draft. Give them a, a buck, which was a bill, and they give you a dime change. You go, oh, go ahead, keep it if you're feeling generous. You know? <laughs> three, three draft for ninety cents. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so that would be. But Canadian, it wasn't necessarily like sucked out of it, and it wasn't really like apparent. So it really works so well as far as those classic slashers because it's not like hinged on a particular demographic i guess that's why it has such a wide appeal i guess the only thing to me that really doesn't give away that uh that it's canadian too is there's no way in the canadian maritimes on february 14th that you would see that much green (laughs) i mean it's clearly was shot as we we shot it primarily in september and october right Mm -hmm. 
and then we had it released by February. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 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 a remarkable thing, especially when I was talking about like Paul Zaza. Uh, okay, we're cutting nine minutes of it. You have to rescore, yeah, so that it Jesus. fits. Yeah, and we've got two days. Yeah, a lot of people don't think about and, uh, that. It's like it was. It, it's insane when I heard about all the stuff that happened afterwards. And I had heard that they were going to do an X-rated version afterwards. From uh, it was when I was roommates with Neil, because uh, I moved. I moved to Toronto first from Montreal. There were a whole bunch of actors from Toronto and a whole bunch from Montreal, and most of the Montreal actors. Except for uh, Neil, Laurie, and I had been in Pinball or Pickup Summer, which was George's movie the year before. That was the year I was doing a film called Crunch, uh, which was originally a Eugene Levy thing. So everybody was a lot of a lot of young people were 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 doing the hijinks. Were you getting the hijinks films? And then the next year it was a lot of the horror films. It was a My Bloody Valentine. There was. Uh, which was originally the secret. The secret. Yeah. There was uh, ghost. Happy birthday to me. Uh, ghost ship or ghost. Uh, the original ghost death ship. ship. No death ship. Death ship, and a, a lot of these different things here. And actually, death ship was the year before because I remember I was at a release party for Crunch, and death ship was one of the three films that we were celebrating at the Montreal Arboretum. So. Uh, so did you did you guys uh, all hear about this project at the same time? Like, when did you hear about the gig specifically? The, the funny thing is, I, I I'm trying to remember where I, I remember reading about it first in the trade mag, okay. uh, uh, the secret, and thinking like, wow, this 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 sounds really interesting because it's about. I'm not sure if it's a slasher film or a psychological thriller. It was like it's such a sketchy thing mm-hmm. about a guy that gets trapped, and it was it was not too far after there had been a news story about a, a guy that had been trapped in a mine and had to eat uh, human uh, flesh to survive mm-hmm. while he was waiting for rescue. So was that how the trade magazine pitched it? Was it was it more hinging on the fact that it was about a miner, or, yeah. or was it, it didn't say anything about like? Now, 20 years later, a for revenge. No, no. Yeah, it was, it, it's, I, not that I recall, and, I'm, and my, my memory might be a little bit oh, that's playing totally tricks on me, yeah. but I mean, I, what I recall thinking about it was the, that that was a definite seed in it, that there was a, a, a man trapped in a mine, uh, has a psychological problem, and wreaks havoc on the town. So... Uh, which is the original Harry, not the twenty year later revenge thing, and I don't remember knowing about the revenge. That's thing. an interesting pitch for them, and it would be intriguing as an actor mm-hmm. because, and they would want somebody, even though there's so much comedy, to approach it with that sort of right. feeling, so that you only know the original story right. and you're sort of thrust in along with your character right. to what's happening nowadays. Right. right. I can remember almost every audition I ever did, but I don't have a single thought flicker of a recognition of. When I how I auditioned for this, or really, I remember thinking I didn't get it, and then going out calling a, a farmer in Delhi because my I'd been basically living on my crunch money, which, okay. which I know I should have invested it and then got a real job. But I was thinking, well, no, I was fourth built in this film. I gotta wait for I I, I gotta show that I'm serious and only do theater or film right now. Well, it's the same as writing. You write right. a book. You have right. some success. Yeah. What do you do? You write another right. book. You don't just go. Thanks for yeah. the fish, guys. So and, like, and then there was this real lull, and then then the, the the summer boom came again, and and I was going like, oh gee, I really wanted to get in that, but I better go tobacco picking. For I did almost the entire season. I was three days away from finishing the season. I came out of the the field. 
And the farmer's wife was jumping up and down. And, Jim, you want to be a star? <laughs> they want what? you to go to Montreal. They want you to go to Montreal tomorrow. I said, well, I haven't finished this season. They said, no, 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 that's fine. Go, go. You know, you, we'll get somebody for it's only three more days. We can. A lot of people have finished, and and yeah. So you got to get to uh, Montreal tomorrow so you can fly to Cape Breton. Uh, okay. I said, oh, so I did get cast. I wonder what I'm playing. Yeah. <laughs> so I got there. I got. I, I I like went straight from the bus to the to the airport. Uh, Arden Rishpen, who's the, I think she's the president of Equity now, but then she was a casting agent. And she met me, she had the tickets, in the plane tickets in her hand, she handed me the plane tickets, and off I went. Wow. And I arrived there, still with my my primer's beard. <laughs> and uh, the next thing I know, I was sitting around a table with all these great people, and we were like, and I'm going like, okay. It's, it's kind of works, you go from a group of... Um, comrades picking tobacco yeah. and working in a group setting like that and sort of isolated group setting yeah. like that to this isolated group setting of acting playing an isolated group setting of <laughs> yeah. yeah and it's, and, then, and then what I find really funny about that is a, a lot of uh, I remember the, particularly McLean's because after, I was thinking this is pretty good and then my mother said did you read the McLean's article she was like really <laughs> my mom got angry after reading McLean's too so I don't really get it that, that idiot says you know and then I read it and I kind of like at the time I kind of agreed with it because I, I, I could all I you know we'd been dog of the week on, on at the, somebody told me on sneak previews I, I never saw it maybe was watching another because I don't ever remember Siskel and Ebert reviewing it but anyway mm-hmm. all, everybody was saying oh no it's uh, the worst type of exploitation uh why would uh, why would anybody choose to be in a film like this? You know, it was all this sort of really negative stuff flying mm-hmm. at me. And then the McLean's interview came out, and it and it basically slammed it for saying it is it follows the format of the uh, of the sort of high school or college dorm sort of murder slasher film, mm-hmm. uh, but feigns at being sort of working class but they all act juvenile and i'm going like man i worked on a concrete crew i work with and that's exactly the way people act up until they're maybe until they're 40 if their bones start getting given out then maybe they they slow down a little bit but you work in that type of stuff you are Mm -hmm. an absolute drunken idiot at the end of the day i mean we we probably didn't get half as half as drunker as those guys there was a a play at that between that, Axel and TJ. That rowdiness that that is, the, the, I think the reason why it rings true to a lot of people who are fans of this movie who have blue collar jobs know what it's like to be around uh, men and women who are just like that. I know yeah. that it certainly it seems completely authentic from my perspective. Yeah. Yeah, looking I guess at whoever's it. writing for McLean's doesn't really. Yeah. Oh yeah, they're an academic. It's right? like oh, well, oh you know, adults don't don't behave like that. Well, but... they've never been on a drill crew. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 They're probably the best at drinking. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I don't even strike it as being very adolescent. Like I tell you, I watch that flick and I'm like, oh, they're acting so juvenile. I feel like I don't, I don't see yeah. that at all. I was yeah. like, you go to any bar. And wait for the paving crew to come in, and you'll see the exact yeah. It's like a work hard, play hard attitude, and yeah. It's a way you get by being in darkness eight hours a day when you come out 
It's party time. Yeah, a job and that's do party. And a job that's actually life. killing them. Yeah. yeah. Right? Like yeah. you have to Yeah. Well, we, we we have so little time when we actually have life when we're gonna be healthy enough to enjoy it because we're still young. Our lungs are gonna die on us. And yeah. we're gonna, if your backs don't give up. Our, first. our back uh, yeah. It, it, it's like uh I remember like I mean Keith uh, was a is a big guy and when we were down in the mine, he was just in front of me. The late Keith Knight, um, mm-hmm. who was I lived with for two years as well. I lived with. Uh, I first came. I, I moved in with uh, with Alf for, and it was only for a week or two until I could find a place. He had said, "Everybody, come on out. You got to come to Toronto. Uh, that's where English film is really good." So Carl Carl came out to Toronto for a while. Went back to because he's so fluently bilingual. Carl Marat. He was in. Uh, he shoots. He scores. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever it was in French anyway he's a he can't walk down Montreal streets he's like a superstar there right but the most of us drifted to either uh, Toronto Vancouver LA or or New York depending on how how ambitious we were or what we were willing to give up to yeah. get what we wanted or what right? you wanted to pursue and what languages spoke. But uh, yeah, exactly. So uh, I mean, so I got there, and then I then I then I moved in with uh, room with an actor. And then he left that place, and Neil moved in, and then Neil and I found Neil found a different place. So I went and I moved in with Keith for another couple of years, and that's basically the way my life was going. It was like my bloody Valentine was still connected. I had at auditions, I'd go to auditions. Anybody that was there from my bloody Valentine, we were immediately like, oh, hey. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, and it's and and so it just instantly rekindled when when the fan base we found was there and and things were and things like that were happening. Do you have that sort of relationship with any of the other people that with other things that you've been on? Have no. you met up with them at auditions? No, not at all. Yeah. No, some of the people I met from theater. Uh, yeah. yeah, if I see them again, I I, I know they they did H two O and I did a horrible audition for it. I was thinking of like getting back in. I, I always play with that and I also mm-hmm. write and I do, and I, I'm a theater critic. I did H2O, I did, I, I said, well, I didn't get the, 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 the role I auditioned for, but they, I got an extra on it and I bumped into uh, Paul Gross because I'd done Walsh with him at the National Arts Center a couple of years after My Bloody Valentine. I was a, one of the resident company at the NAC. Uh, and I bumped into his his wife at a at a at an opening, and that sort of so the theater people, yeah, you still I still get that, but from film, no, yeah, nobody that I've worked with in film have I had that feeling from, mm-hmm. and, and where we've stayed connected, that really close, and yeah. it's probably a lot of what our us as horror fans hinge on to too, yeah, absolutely, the theater angle. Um, you were in a sort of horror, semi horror related making necrophiliac. Oh, you found that, did you? Oh, of course. I I dug deep for the song. Especially, I watched the song once and every lyric, like for the theme song. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a fun thing. Well, that was was a bit unusual because I I always thought they should have called it Make Me Happy because it's not about necrophilia, although there is a great little song in it. I've always loved your rock hard dick, but not the prick attached to it. Yeah, yeah, it's a great song. Yeah, yeah, it is. And Maureen, uh, Maureen Shom. Well, that that came about because 
uh, I'm a big fan of the blues scene in Ottawa. Yeah, you had a, a song in there where you play harmonica and stuff. There's a little harmonica in My Bloody Valentine, yeah. too. So yeah. mm-hmm. someone's looking for a tie between the two aside from Jim and Horror. Yeah, yeah. No, no. so I didn't play harmonica in that film. I played harmonica in, uh, I played harmonica in Crunched. Uh, oh, you did? Yeah. So that's where you got your harmonica yeah. skills. I, I got my harmonica skills because I was a, uh, from, uh, actually, I learned harmonica from a guy named James Taylor. Uh, no relation. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, I was like, whoa. <laughs> uh, who is a Montreal, uh, a Montreal um, a guy that I directed community theater after I finished theater school at John Abbott, and and I was trying to learn how to bend a note. Oh, okay. Um, a lot of people play open um, harmonica, but the real blues harmonica and the best country harmonica, you're actually cupping the air into the back of your throat and, and bending it and growling with it and, 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 and reshaping it, basically. The same way that you would you would uh, bend a, a string on a blues note, you know, like stretch the string out to make it whine. I'm, like, not musically inclined at all. This is yeah. fascinating <laughs> to me. I'm like, whoa, what? <laughs> so uh, I we were having a, a cast party for... Uh, I directed James Taylor and, uh, and a bunch of other people that... Them I do keep in contact again theater right, I keep in contact with a few of those people. Um, anyway, I, I remember I was just laying on the floor with my harmonica trying to bend a note, and Jim going no, okay now, and he giving me different visual images. Think of drawing the note so that it goes in an arc through to the back of your head and then comes back out, and think of or think of sucking the note down into your diaphragm and spitting it back out. And I'm just like, okay. And just all these different things until all of a sudden it was there. And once you bend a note, you, it's very hard to play straight again. It's, it's, okay. it's yeah. So, yeah, so I, 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 I played, uh, I, so that's where I first started playing. And then I got cast in, in Crunch and the director saw me playing on a break and had me, uh, just worked a little bit yeah, and worked it. a little bit into yeah. it same sort of thing with uh i guess uh neil neil i know plays I, i've played with neil uh we both play harp and we backed up tom kovach when he does his uh, tom kovach was a guitar player singer uh at his some of his gigs and uh, whenever we can when we get together so people just sort of like <laughs> I, I, I actually won uh, tom kovach he does his port credit job and he and he and he involves the audience. I, I was mentioning that uh, I, I don't think we were on air when I was. Yeah, beforehand we were talking about this uh, tour that he does yeah, yeah. and where he's right, the right, entertainment right. for the night. So Tom Kovach, who was Mike in in My Bloody Valentine, does this thing where he comes out. He meets with with a few people before he meets everybody before he does his show at this yacht club, and then uh, and there's so it's somewhere between two and three hundred people. I don't have the exact count, but he comes out after talking to everybody for about a half an hour. And he goes, hi, my name's Tom Kovach. I'm your lead singer for tonight. I'd like to introduce you to my backup singers. And he goes through everybody in the entire restaurant and names them by name. That's crazy. In order, just walks around. Over there we have, you know, over there we have Wes and Lydia and Jim, and over here we have this, that, and he does everybody, absolutely everybody. That's crazy. So he, he's he's this great little entertainer, and I went and I played backup uh, twice for him uh, on uh, me and Bobby McGee, and he said, I said, yeah, I'll, I'll play on that. What key is it? And he told me oh, it's these two keys, so I figured I needed two harmonicas, and I played for 
progressions over. So if it's so, I had to. You have to change the harmonicas you're playing because you're not playing in the main key of the harmonica. Yeah, you're playing you can't what they tune call. The as you yeah. Go. So yeah. You're, you're if you're plan on playing in second position, which for a guy that plays cross harp gives them more, uh, more more variety. They can play yeah, more, more with the, attitude, with the yeah. palette. Uh, and by the way, I don't read, and I have no idea what I'm going to play or how I'm going to do it when, <laughs> when I get up there. I just Always listen to the groove. And... If the band is good, I lock into that groove and I play uh, on it. So I, I played on me and Bobby McGee, and I told him I'd never played it before, and it was received very well. And he gives a little, uh, he, this buck store trophy that he says, for the best guest entertainer at Tom Kovach, uh, you know, uh, Port Credit Show, and he gave it to me. So <laughs> I, I, I did this, you know, sort of thing. It's like, you like me. You really like me. And, uh, was that uh, one of the things with uh, making necrophilia? Did they ask you, like, if you, were they looking for someone who played harp? Well, they knew, I, they knew I played harp. And I knew, I knew, uh, I knew Guy. And uh, then he, at that time, his, his partner was Maureen, uh, Maureen Schoem, who wrote all of the music. And she originally wrote it just as a, series of songs and then decided she wanted to do a play. She had, oh, done, cool. she had okay. done some stuff with, with Fringe a couple of years earlier uh, with a, a group called Wet Dreams Theater. And uh, so she, 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 you know, done that sort of stuff. Uh, so she did, a, she cast another guy uh, as uh, Beauregard uh, and we did that and I played Howie the Handyman. And then, uh, and then Oren didn't do Bo the second time, and so I I took on Bo. So I know I, but I had played backup harmonica for him in the for for the first Bo. Okay. Yeah. In the yeah. in the original production, mm-hmm. and so then I did uh, did the, the bad actor blues uh, was the main song that I did and and played Bo for. Uh, we did three other versions of it. Oh, cool. Okay. Um, and it's a decent run. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's it's a kind of a funny thing because we never actually got very big audience. We played at Saw Gallery. We played at, uh, above Venus Envy at a at a BDSM mm-hmm. club. Mm-hmm. We did mm-hmm. you know just sort of like alternative sort of venues. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, I thought we should have played at like a tavern or something because the play takes place in a tavern. But Maureen said, "Well, no. If we play in a tavern, then people won't take it seriously. It'll be." I said, "But the Carlton Tavern I sells was just out." Say, the Carlton All would be the, the perfect. Place I said it'll be pre- no, no, no. So I was asked about my interest in doing it again, and no, I that's that that's had its run. Well, you're busy now too because you're going to be in Orlando soon enough mm-hmm. at the end of the summer or beginning of the fall. Beginning of the fall, yeah, yeah. September. And there was the. Cherry Hill, New Jersey, mm-hmm. and what how what has taken place in between? Like, are there any other things besides that one very large reunion that's coming up in yeah. thirty years? Yeah, mm-hmm. very large one. Um, uh, in between, there were some some things with that Fangoria sponsored events in, uh, in in Toronto at some conventions there, but there was a lot of other things. Like this this convention is primarily the burning and my bloody Valentine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those yeah. two reunions. Mm-hmm. Uh, at uh, I forget there was one other we were one of the showcase we were the showcase reunion at Cherry Hill um, but there were a lot of other people there like I mean mm-hmm. I remember uh, Martin Landau was there Barbara Eden was there Gary Busey and his son were there mm-hmm. 
there were a whole bunch of little uh, um, Tom Atkins who was in the remake of My Bloody Valentine but was there primarily for I think Silver Bullet or some werewolf film uh, but I mean uh, yeah in between there's been a lot of contact with the different members of the cast there's been um, there's been some uh, some minor reunions uh, I would say uh, in, in in Toronto like and where one or two people yeah. are called in for screening yeah, and yeah. stuff like that and I've yeah. done some online interviews uh, cool. and so has and so and uh, so has other members of the cast uh, let me ask you this your first time that you're asked to do a, a, a convention what is the initial thought going through your mind when someone says, hey, man, why don't you come over, do this convention with us? We'll set you up at a table and you'll sign stuff. Since you kind of like did the movie and moved on with your life. And kind of theater, television. And, and you know, did a, a myriad of things. And maybe you've thought about it. It's like, oh, yeah, I, I did this movie. And some people know what it is. But yeah. you, you kind of like, you know, life moves in one direction and forward. And you know, very rarely do we take time to look back. But when you find yourself in a position where horror fans have just picked up this movie from what you did years ago and like we love this and we want to meet you and we want you to be at a convention what, what was your initial thoughts about that like the first thing is shock uh because i i had no idea I, and 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 neither did neither did anybody else in the cast really i mean I, when i saw george uh last month he was just saying it's bigger than it's ever been, and he was telling me about the vinyl pressing that he was about to do yeah, and, yeah. And, and all of this stuff. And I was just going like, ah, I mean, it's a long shot, but we did. George did talk about a vision for uh, a sequel. Let me tell you, it's good for you. Your character doesn't die in the movie. No, <laughs> so, no. <laughs> no. Tommy could be back. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No. And 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 in his and we also talked about uh, another sort of uh, mm-hmm. project that we might able to do together which which was kind of cool well you guys have so much latitude and mm-hmm. the what gets popular has a lot of latitude too mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. the world's kind of your oyster in that way and that you've kept working so yeah yeah i mean i i've kept work i haven't kept as much of a professional but i've always been interested either in um I was doing reviews for the Charlebois Post, and uh, now I, I, I hadn't done reviews for a while because Charlebois Post folded. It was like at Canada's National Theatre and, and Opera Magazine. Mm-hmm. And now, uh, but I just did something for Capital Critics um, for a, an Orpheus show. And I did perform for Orpheus in Fiddler. Um, so, I mean, uh, Fiddler on the Roof yes, is yeah, the full yeah, title. Yeah. Is that uh, the, there's an Orpheus building right over here, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is it haunted? Do you know? Yeah, apparently it is. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, yeah. I was like on a tangent yeah. now. Because yeah. I walk by it all the time and I've seen in like some ghost hunting site online. Yeah. That is, yeah. Yeah. I, Never had any during the rehearsals I did, I came in, in contact with no ghosts other okay. than the ones that were written at the play. Good. Uh, so I, I also, I remember, I remember working in, uh, in Summerstock in, in Dorset, Vermont, and there was... Uh, there had been a, uh, a technician that had been electrocuted in that theater. And in the house that we stay, because we'd stay at a house just about 50 yards from the, this barn, literally the barn converted to a theater. Right? Uh-huh. Uh, and apparently there was another old woman that had fallen down the stairs there. And everybody there had seemed to be familiar with ghosts in that building. And it's not uncommon in, in theater sets and in mines to have ghosts. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of like um, mythology to do with what you can and can't do, and like that gentleman pulling that one pack out of your friend's hands up because it was Mark 13 to not go. Like a yeah. lot of superstition. Yeah. And with these active minds, there's sometimes a lot of death linked right. to them. Well, we never, we never, like the one thing is that we weren't allowed to take the women into the mine. Okay. Uh, so they didn't get that experience. They, their experience was uh, in, in the princess. They didn't go down with the, the, the face of the 26, okay. uh, which was frankly scary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's bad luck. There's a whole movie about yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Beneath, I think it is. Yes. Yeah. But uh, I mean, all of all of this, all of this, this stuff that uh, happened in the mine. I remember Chris Carbaugh, who was the the miner in the remake, when we were talking about working in the mine, like his jaw dropped. Yeah. Like he was like, because he was the only one in the panel that wasn't from the original movie, and we had this big lineup of people, and he just goes, "Wow, we never, we were about." 40 feet down in our movie in a little shaft we, we didn't do anything like like that there was nothing like that really? I mean Peter uh, Cowper uh, for again we were talking about the lighting being mm-hmm. so restrictive he actually got a sore neck from doing the movie because the only lighting for some of the scenes particularly like the where Helen is carried up as Sylvia and, and taken that's his the light that is lighting that is his own head. It's the light on on the on his helmet on his standard, and that was the only light. Did that they hold were, it particularly yeah, still? Yeah, so he had he, he had to learn how to really like not even be looking where he was going when he was carrying because he was the light. Wow, he was the light for the scene. He was the major That's major so demanding. Folk. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so I mean, um, uh, yeah, Peter was wildly popular in Cherry Hill but I mean we were we all were I mean and I, I, I and again my thought about the film is that the mind and the situation is the star and we just basically had to just have fun and try to not get in the way of it you know <laughs> I mean that's that's a you know, Spencer Tracy used to say don't let anybody catch you at acting well I, I think that we can get caught at acting in this one a lot because <laughs> the, the, the genre renders itself, uh, renders itself to a hyperbole and there are some points where we're just like over the top uh, and that's why when I first saw it and the reviews were coming out and I was watching there and people laughed when I said chief chief listen to me we're having a party and Harry Warden started killing everybody and I'm going like and I hear <laughs> I'm going like oh my god I must have blown it and then I think then I looked at it again like 20 years later, and I went, no, actually, that's right. Yeah. That's right. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a little more trouble watching myself in the scenes where I'm not speaking, and I'm just either smirking or crying. Uh, uh, those <laughs> ones I find difficult. But when I actually get a chance to talk, mm-hmm. I, well, you, the notes are hit. You're given well. the big scene where it's your character's job, Tommy, to tell the police officially what is happening to right. get everyone together sound to, the alarm yeah. sound the yeah. alarm to basically yeah. uh get down so you get to like swerve off onto your car yeah and uh, and, uh yeah so like like tommy actually has like a pretty important job to do in that one scene yeah it's funny i, I mean since when i when i discovered the repopularity uh or the the underground popularity mm-hmm. uh, which is not underground anymore. It's kind of percolated to the oh, surface yeah, in my yeah. head. But, oh, totally. Uh, <laughs> it totally has. But, but when I first discovered it, I started looking like, and, and, and I remember Tom and I, because we shared a table at Cherry Hill, everybody that came up, Tom would go, can I ask you a question? Can I ask you a question? Why did you like it so much? 
<laughs> and, and he was being genuine, you know. Uh, and he going like, uh, and he would ask people like, and, and what do you think of the? And some people would say, what do you what do you think of the remake? He go, I haven't seen it. What did you think of the remake? <laughs> you know? It's been years. Yeah. It's not yeah. even on his mind. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, yeah. what? Where did all you people come yeah. from? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And I mean, and we had this little thing, and it was like twenty dollars a signature, and they had it like posted up there. And I remember like Tom and Alf switched it to saying two dollars, and then they got somebody to come up to me right after I'd taken a break to go to the bathroom, saying, "Oh, Mr. Murchison, we'd love to have your autograph. How much do you charge?" And I, I, I said, "Well, because I, I didn't set the rates. Our, our agent did. The guy that brought us down there, because he's yeah. making money off of us too, right?" Yeah. I said uh, twenty dollars. He says, "How come your sign says two? And I was like. What? <laughs> and then they're laughing, they're killing. So we're still, we still have that sort of like camaraderie, that sort of hijink type of uh, thing, right? Yeah. Anyway, it backfired on them because they ended up saying, "Well, now that we've played this little trick on you, we really, this would be a great story. We really do want your autograph, and we really will pay you for it." And they didn't get an autograph when I did. So. <laughs> <laughs> Take <that>. <laughs> <laughs> your little plan backfired. <laughs> it must be like strange because like conventions are a strange place. To they are, in. yeah. And I'm sure that a lot of you hadn't been attending conventions regularly, if not being like huge horror uh, anime comic fans. No. Anyone outside of that realm, these conventions really exist on an island. Yes. So being all of a sudden thrust into not only convention life in a way, being thrust into a table like yeah it could be oh and surreal. we were like we were taking the fans would come up and you know want our picture and say well yeah can we have yours you know uh, we were like <laughs> like there was there cool. were people there that were like transformers and trees and <laughs> you know characters from the okay cool yeah. and I remember when we did when we did our panel in in, in Cherry Hill uh, New Jersey we got them, uh, Tom at the very end of it Tom's a great mobilizer as I've already said he just said okay Everybody on three, my bloody Valentine, and and and, and he, like he, we did a pan up, and, okay, because cool. we just had this full theater that had just watched the movie, and then we come out and we're there, you know, yeah, yeah, and it was just like, it was mind blowing, yeah. yeah, it really was, it was like, it, it's it's humbling and it's it's just something that just hits you like a, a total a total shock that you actually did something that resonated with some people you know especially like when the initial release of the movie wasn't it didn't light the world on fire no. and 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 uh, initial reviews were coming out that were unkind and unfortunately when so many of the slashers were coming out in that era and there were McLean articles and Siskel and Eber like doing no. a whole show dedicated to how much they hated slasher yes, movies. Yes, how the, the, the genre has to go, the, basically. Ba- basically. We keep, and, it's responsible for John Lennon dying yeah. and all of, every, all violence in the world. Everything yeah. wrong with yeah. society is is being uh, uh, created by these movies. Or, or yeah. and, and then to be, to years later, A, like, obviously we know now that obviously that's all ridiculous mm-hmm. and and then to be is it a little bit vindicating to to kind of be like us? yeah it is you know i mean and, and, it's, and it's the same sort of i mean i mean my god you know uh was it uh was it hinkley that had the catcher in the rye and, and the exactly. bible in his book but Hink- nobody's trying exactly. to say ban the bible and the catcher in the rye exactly and who know you know mental illness is a lot more layered and complex in that and for a lot yeah. of people the whole uh, some of the most 
peaceful, benign people I've met are horror fans, and they mm-hmm. and this is the a release, you know. It's like mm-hmm. you know, you know, riding on a roller coaster doesn't mean that you want to you know, get in a car crash on a highway. Uh, no, it's definitely true because you know? I know a lot of the most calm people you said are horror fans and people that commit atrocious crimes generally aren't. Yeah. They're really just pop culture, normal yeah. people or they're very into classical music. They're very into all sorts of yeah, different yeah. things. Yeah. yeah, it has nothing to do with their madness or illness or the violence that they're committing at all. At all, I, at all. I think that the main thing that causes explosion of violence is the subverting or trying to closet the darker sides of you and not giving them any release i mean it's you know it's like why so many people that are in positions of uh, of, of trust with children uh, that that turn out later to be doing horrific things mm-hmm. uh, you find out that these people do not want to do present themselves as relatively ordinary, you have to really be careful and look at the signs. People that are outwardly different mm-hmm. are the people that we should be celebrating in society that are just great. I mean, and we've they're got the a safest guy. too. There's yeah. no one yeah. that's at a, a BDSM club that's going to commit a sexual crime, right. by and large, because they have a safe place to express it. And if there was somebody there that noticed some really deviant behavior, they would talk to them about it and yeah. they'd feel comfortable talking about it. Where uh, a regular guy, girl that doesn't have that sort of outlet, right. those things can fester. Yeah, 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 yeah. I met a whole bunch of people that uh, they look every different way imaginable, and they're, all, they're the one thing that kept them that that united them as far as was their love of of horror and their love of slasher films, and uh, they they appreciated the art of it, you know, and. Mm palette of expression. I used to love the cartoons of uh, a guy named Edward Gore. He was a New York uh, yeah. illustrator and I bought, I had all the amphigories. Amphigory 1, 2 and 3 and The Doubtful Guest and the Gashley Crumb Tinies and all these things and that's pretty dark that's the part of me. And, but I would show like these books to other people and they would go like Think it's creepy or something. Ooh, man, you're uh, a little bit off, especially pre Tim Burton, because people yeah. would look at that and it would be super niche to them and creepy. Yeah, yeah. 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 He, he uh, Edward Gorey designed the Broadway Dracula okay. with the same sort of thing with the, yeah. these wonderful Edwardian uh, pen and ink type of style and, and very very dark, very much like the you know the, the Tim Burton animated stuff that, that you saw later. People look at a lot of subversive art that exact same way yeah. because it is like underground and niche. But then you take something like a horror film that is such a wide genre. Yeah. And there's so many different kinds of it. How could they put somebody in an envelope because they like a particular slasher? I guess it was a little right. easier back then when there wasn't this wide berth of horror that like the, all the colors of the horror rainbow yeah. that we have today. Yeah, most yeah. yeah, most people that are fans of the genre have no desire to see an actual snuff film. I guess people didn't have that reaction though. Like you look back at older horror and Dracula and stuff like that, they didn't say that they were like corrupting the youth. You had done some work with uh, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Yeah, 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 I did. Uh, yeah, that was that was fun. Yeah, no one turned on that saying, you know, that's corrupting morals. Yeah, I, I had some incredibly bad timing on a couple of things because I would get into like when I did get it, when I get it into 
My Bloody Valentine, the potential of a franchise was there, but then no. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of good now, but at the, at the time it was like, hey, I survived, like you said, you know. <laughs> yeah. Gee, the sequel would be good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, if, there, if, if anything like that happened, we'd be the old codgers and they'd probably concentrate on the younger kids. Although, George looks at things differently. And, and yeah. as, as a, a new pressing of a My Bloody Valentine soundtrack is out and, or coming out and uh, that'll garner more interest in it, and like like we were talking before we uh, turned mics on, it's just like the the scarcity of of um, things to consume. Horror fans are consumers. We right. love to buy things. Yeah. Most of us, anyway. And um, yeah, I'm not a big collector. I'm at all. a big so collector. The stories of collectors are, are very neat to me. But um, you know, it makes um, it puts my bloody Valentine in in sort of like what horror fans love to do is tell you about like that movie in their pocket right. that. That is so good, and you gotta see it. My Bloody Valentine is definitely there. It's it's in the same company as things like Prom Night and the same things like uh, Prowler and um, The Burning. Mm -hmm. These are these are movies that it's going to be fun to make, mix with the cast from The Burning when they're oh, down. Oh, they're, they're they're the other featured cast reunion. When yeah, they're down there. yeah, 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 and that's and that's. Uh, that's going to be really, really cool. We've done the burning on our show as well. Yeah. Talked about that Never flick. That was one that not you, I wouldn't say you had it in your pocket. I, didn't have I it get in my the pocket. analogy totally, but I'd never watched the burning, and you mm -hmm. were like, "Oh man!" I was like, "You got to watch the burning." Well, yeah. I, I specifically watched it because they're going to be there. Mm -hmm. And last time, everybody asked me what I thought of. Oh yeah, <laughs> of the remake of My Bloody Valentine, and not having seen it, I, I now made yeah. it sure that I've seen that and I've seen the burning. Mm -hmm. uh, Good job. And the burning, uh, the burning is uh, is pretty cool. I, I can't imagine why twelve super fit kids on a raft couldn't get away from a severely burned guy <laughs> with a pair of scissors. We, we talked about that on the show. <laughs> it makes no sense. He's yeah, so yeah, scared. Yeah, like yeah. going from a laying, like laying down in a boat. Yeah. To standing up and fighting all of those kids yeah. at the same time, not falling in the water. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Especially when your your mobility has definitely been severely affected by third degree burns over yeah. your entire body. Yeah, right? it's yeah, like you're yeah. so very. He's a very hurt man. Yeah, yeah. So he's got a little bit of Mike Myers sort of. There must be some sort of supernatural power to him, <laughs> sort of thing for sure. But uh, but my bloody Valentine. Um, like, let me tell you, like of all the like you look at people. Um, I, I read a lot of uh, books about the genre a mm -hmm. lot, and people always uh, uh, horror authors uh, who are talking about this um, academically kind of like to throw their hat into the ring about what is a sequel worthy slasher film that doesn't have a sequel. Mm -hmm. um, to me, and the burning gets brought up a lot, but I was like, but the, my bloody Valentine's ending is begging for yeah. a continuation. <laughs> yeah. Of it, especially if like you have, if you don't really like, you know, and there's like a mythology around it. What well, are sort of like and... the way to do things back then? Was sort of like we'll just leave it there, and if well, someone wants to pick it up, I yeah, mean, I mean that's exactly yeah. what you do, right? I, I was like, sometimes people make these movies with no intention of sequels, and then they have thirteen sequels. You asked Sean Cunningham. <laughs> Like, if Friday the 13th was ever supposed to have a sequel, he's like, no, Jason was dead in the first or movie. Like Halloween. Halloween. Where, John, it wasn't supposed like, to go past the second yeah, one, yeah, which yeah. Yeah. Like, Myers, and yeah, um, they had to. And then they had to. But the, it's crazy to me. So it's like, but My Bloody Valentine came out, and it came out right in the heyday of the slasher boom, which probably hurt it, honestly, for getting, like, the, the audience, like, the general audience's attention on it. Yeah. Because of how much stuff 
was coming out mm-hmm. at the same time. And because of the fact that people would just brush it off as like, oh, well, it's another thing. But like I said, it's not so much that My Bloody Valentine reinvented the wheels in terms of the subgenre of slasher, but it's just that it did it so well. It, mm-hmm. did, it, did, it did all the things and did it better than more well-known slasher movies. Yeah. Because yeah. of the fact that like you have characters that are believable and likable. You cared when they mm. died. You have a story. That I you- like that. Thank you. I mean, I, to <laughs> me, when I talk to the people at Cherry, I think, and, and, and uh, I, I think that that's a huge, huge thing that, that, that you like the people. Uh, and, and if I was, and I don't want to diss the remake, but yeah. I, I didn't particularly care about the people in the remake. I, 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 I didn't, I, I missed. They seem disposable and don't have as much. Yeah, yeah, you know. I missed uh, Hollis and and Sylvia and and John and 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 me. The general the, the, the general con- the general concern that the that you guys uh, the characters had for each other. Yeah. There wasn't like this big disconnect between generations, which seems to be a big yeah. thing. Where it's like the authorities aren't listening. The authorities mm. are absolutely listening, mm. uh, and the young people are just like. Well, okay, we'll just blow off a little steam and have our own little party over here. It's not hurting anything. Yeah. And and because of the and the remake suffers from the fact that it is self-consciously making a slasher movie. Mm. Whereas I felt uh, even from a young age watching My Bloody Valentine. So I probably saw it the first time when I was about 11 or 12. Mm. The fact that like um, it seems to be a movie, it's just a film that happens to be a slasher movie because yeah. you so could organic. you could take yeah. the slasher elements out of it and it works you have a story about a guy that went away came yeah. back his girls with another dude i love that angle and yeah. let me tell you like that angle where we're like now they got to work together oh shit it's yeah. not maybe not yeah. Yeah. you know what i'm saying yeah. like it's a great yeah. twist it's and played very realistically yeah. very realistic um, your performance in the scene where you're telling the sheriff and everyone's performance in that scene like people can think it's over the top but I'm like thank you that is authentic that is panic that is fear that is distress people that you care about have just died and so many times in, mm. in horror movies and I bust on it all the time on our show somebody dies oh they're dead Go- goodbye like th- the second a character dies we leave yeah. and, and we don't care about that anymore yeah. because we're moving forward yeah but was, you but- know and another scene like that that I really really love is is uh, Alf who plays Howard mm. when just before he gets uh, I, I, do we have to worry about spoiler alerts? No, we're, no. it's okay. okay. Our, our, our listeners be- know. <laughs> okay, just before he gets his head taken off with the chain there, mm. um, and he realizes that he's been joking through the whole film, mm-hmm. uh, and and then suddenly it's like, oh come on, man, oh man, we we gotta go, you know? It's like, yeah. and you just and, and it's just so genuine. And yeah. I've always, I, I and, and when I I talked to, I mean, because Alf's character got criticized a lot. For being, uh, you know, the obnoxious joker. Sort yeah, of yeah. Of a, a, a lot of character, yeah. like the the jokey character in a slasher movie, like Shelley I, I from. Know people like that. Though. Like, but so why? <laughs> yeah. But no, I'm agreeing with what like what you're saying. Like when it's when we realize that our characters are in danger, he's his character changes. Like a human beings would. And yeah. you can't help but feel for him because it's yeah. like, oh, he's experiencing the real boy who cried wolf problem. Yeah. 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 And I mean, I mean, Keith asked for, he says, I'm a big guy. Give me a second rivet in my head. He asked yeah. for that in that scene, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I want to really make it work. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, yeah. And, and I, and I mean, I remember one scene where we were all around a pool table uh, and 
and Alf is going like snorting Coca-Cola through a straw. Gotcha, uh, talking, yeah. and, and he goes, uh, and, and I, I added a line in that. It's the only place where I had lived. Uh-huh. And you can barely hear it. But we were always kind of like supporting each other and like, you know, can't, you know, uh, you couldn't sweep that table with a broom. <laughs> I think, I think, I'm pretty sure Keith added that line in. Uh, and so in the thing, oh, last time I tried to snort Coke, I almost drowned. Uh, and I said, uh, next time try harder. <laughs> and it's just, a, it's just an offline in the, in, in the back. And Keith cracked up and he was going like, that, what a great tagline, you know? And we were always like, sort of like in each other's corner. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's so, great when you have that kind of yeah. support. So, I mean, and that... I think is what came through and that is what if there's something I'm proud of it's proud of the fact that there was a a general consensus with the cast that we were friends that we were in this together and so when when those those pivotal moments come like the moment with with Alf or the moment with me where I have to go back into the Mm -hmm. town or with Patty and and Sarah, and Sarah uh, uh, the stuff Lori with Patty is fantastic. Yeah. When when uh, when she discovers her boyfriend, like the, the the change in her character, just kind of being like 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 the sort of like uh, loud, jokey, like very confident yeah. woman yeah. to falling apart because yeah, her boyfriend is dead in front yeah. of her, and and the, the complete change in her character from that point on, and being so genuinely, it seems so authentically scared. So uh, like yeah, I was, I was like like yeah, the performances across the board are just fantastic. And then like if, if anyone is talking about like My Bloody Valentine, the reason why people are still talking about My Bloody Valentine all these years later is because of what you guys brought to it. Yes, the mind is authentic. Yes, the special effects look great. But there's lots of movies with great sets and lots of movies with fantastic special effects. But there's only one movie with your guys cast. Yeah. That's my bloody Valentine. Thank you, thank you. I mean, I'm, uh, George, George and Bob uh, Pressner, the line producer and, and, and mm-hmm. director George Mahalka, were talking about the things that they were proud of, and they were saying like it wasn't a bunch of slutty girls getting killed because they were <laughs> slutty. It wasn't the most respected person in the entire film was Hollis, who was uh, overweight. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The uh, I mean, there were a lot of very, very real things with with the people. I saw, <laughs> I saw a, a parody that somebody had put together. Well, it was it was actually our our film, but they cut the scenes differently. Okay. Uh, and it was if My Bloody Valentine was a cheesy romance. Okay. Oh wow! Uh, You're gonna have to and and, uh, and it was and it and it showed where you can find love, and it showed. John and Sylvie picking each other up and it showed Axel and, and TJ <laughs> hugging each other and one man is alone and it showed uh, I mean Axel and um, and Sarah hugging each other and it showed TJ one man is alone on Hall- on Halloween and it showed TJ over in the corner like this and then it said by where you can find love no matter your gender and it showed me and Carl oh. <laughs> oh, no matter your weight and then it showed uh, you know it showed Keith and and, uh, and, and Cynthia and it was and it was just, it was kind of funny. I, I had, I mean, 
Gretchen talks about me, but you never actually do see me with a woman. And so I could see this. in a sequel mm-hmm. if Dave hadn't had his face boiled off and died, uh, yeah. that maybe we could carry that on in the sequel. You know? Yeah, yeah. I'd be, I'd be down with that. That's cool. World building. <laughs> so I know. So there's been all sorts of so many things that have been written and done, and a lot of people are huge fans of that. Uh, I mean, Paul Zaza was talking about. Uh, getting a call from Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. yeah. Just like crazy thank you for because he sent him a copy of the Ballad of Harry Warden and he apparently Quentin and and Paul Rodriguez love to sing the song and get drunk together, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Quentin Tarantino has gone on record saying that's his favorite slasher yeah, film yeah. of all time. Yeah, that didn't hurt us either. Yeah. <laughs> you know, years later finding that out. Yeah. Um, and I and I, like I said, I until 2000 and Seven, where I started hearing the rumblings, and in two thousand nine, when everything really started happening, mm-hmm. I didn't have a clue. Yeah, didn't have a clue. That was a surprise. Yeah. 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 I'm sure there's yeah. lots of people, lots of films that have the same sort of experience where they've done a film so many years ago, and it just sort of like filters away. And maybe they see it mm-hmm. in a rental bin years later and be like, "Oh, cool, I was in that." But then to have it all come back and this yeah. underground sort of job must be just. Yeah, Surreal. yeah, it's, yeah, it is. It is. It's very, 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 very different. We, you know, we don't look too bad from all these years later. Yeah, <laughs> no. so the thing about our show is that what we always try to do is like we always talk about horror films because that's what the listeners like have come for. Mm-hmm. But it's more about like our relation to horror and where it entered our lives because we find that like our memories are very similar to a lot of horror fan memories. Right. Discovering these movies. And, and the revelation to us is that other people like them, too. Yeah. When I was a horror fan as a kid, I was a very... Um, I, I was the only kid that I knew that liked it. Yeah. So my friends didn't give a shit about <laughs> any horror. Yeah. You think I could get... Like, the reason... Like, you think I could get my friends to watch Money, My Bloody Valentine? They wanted to watch Star Wars. They wanted to watch Star Trek. They wanted to watch that. Independence Day. They wanted to watch those flicks. Well, I like those movies, too. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But it was always like this weird little thing that I kept in my back pocket. And I thought, nobody likes this but me. Yeah. But then when you start to get older and I met other horror fans and they're like, you like this movie? I like this movie. Mm-hmm. And you start sharing stories. You're like, oh, my God, that's exactly like me. Oh, my God, this scene freaked yeah. me out, too. Like in My Bloody Valentine, I remember always getting freaked out by the scene where all the... The um the stuff was the, mm-hmm. the the clothes were dropping right right I always used to like like as a kid I was like oh that's because it's so panicked and freaky looking oh and like, you know eventually oh my god that, and you're just like the oh body's no. coming down on that you know. oh my and then, and then it does and it's like mm-hmm. on the yeah. hook and you're like yeah. whoa like yeah. and uh, I was yeah. just like the right age for it um and so like our show really is about like uh, we talk about the movies but we go on tangents constantly okay cool. and, and you're like a yeah. content generator that's what i like it's just like ask you a couple of questions and you're going yeah, so, okay. like. yeah that, that you know you were talking about that reminds me of like critics and how when i first heard what the critics were saying i just basically okay i thought it was better than that but i kind of part of you believes the critics because you don't want to be like one of these people that goes oh wait a minute wait a minute they didn't get it yeah but where i can say that critics actually don't get it is when they talk about something being contrived or fake and they have no idea where it came from all i i i can't tell you how many people thought uh, or, or there was at least this one uh, critic that wrote how we invented this thing where you hang your coats up at the, and that that scene with hollis where he's explaining how that works really? and all that 
that that was the way they did it at that mine. I mean, that that was not a made up thing. I read another thing where somebody said, "Oh, and the you know the cheap dollar store heart that was in the box." We didn't use any plastic hearts. Those were all real hearts. They were pig hearts. Yeah, they're, they're, those were genuine. It just goes to show you, that, you like know. people, like people, like that. Usually, to me, comes from people who, and one of the genesis for us doing this show and for me starting to do, like I started writing on a, a, my own horror site and, and mm. doing reviews, was because we were sick and tired of just like people like that who who went into it with the wrong attitude. They mm. didn't want to like it. Yeah. Oh, a horror movie. Yeah, and yeah. and so they start writing about it and not like either not watching the film at all which is a dirty little secret that they'd like you not (laughs) to know or barely paying attention to it and just being like oh like and just like yeah plastic hearts whatever yeah not giving like not scrutinizing anything not giving the the film the attention it deserves not understanding like you may think it's dumb but do you have any idea how much work this is? Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's yeah. like so. If if you don't like the genre, at least give the craftsmanship respect. You know that originally uh, George was supposed to do this comedy. Okay. And they met with the guy that wrote it. There were it was seven hundred pages long. The guy had been in a drug induced sort of <laughs> panic, and it was and it made no sense whatsoever. And I said. And that's when they got John Baird in. We got to get something written, and we got to have. We got to be ready to do this. And this is in July. We got to be ready to shoot it mm-hmm. in September or October for a release in February. What can we do? And they came up with the idea. Uh, Steve Miller and uh, who was Stephen Miller was one of the uh, original concept guys. Got this guy John Baird, who I used to hang out a bit with on the set as well, because he was there. The writer was there. It was kind of cool. Which is nice, especially when we're ad-libbing some of this Oh, yeah, stuff. absolutely. That's but, a you know, huge value to have. Rare. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, so he was there on, on the set in the bar, sitting at a table at the back. And when we, in between shots, we'd be sitting around talking. I found out he, he had the exact same birthday as me. Did and, they keep much of the original script, or did they just scrap it entirely? Oh, no, it was it, it, pretty much the entire script. With a, with a, but when we were doing, like, the friendship sort of camaraderie, Keith might toss in a line, or I might, uh, mm-hmm. you know, or, 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 or and, and and Alf sort of had a lot of little gags and jokes up his yeah. sleeve too. It's very you know? physical too. There's yeah. a lot of body yeah. language. Yeah. That's and if you have a, if you have that many lived. if you have that many people in a scene together, yeah, for yeah. sure. Like yeah. you're definitely gonna it's gonna flow more organically. So yeah, if you you make it conversational, and so yeah. the line may vary a bit, or you may add in a new line if it if it works, you know. Or if you just yeah. don't use that word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. it just doesn't yeah. flow off. Yeah, your tongue. It's once once you get a master shot done, uh, if you're going to be matching it, then then that's when the continuity becomes a question. You might have to exactly yeah. copy it, but that that first big scene, wide scene with everybody, that that can sometimes. Go a little bit off, and sometimes, it, and that may, and that's sometimes what makes it better. Like I said, we we pretty much love working with each other and being together. And afterwards, even at the bar, like when the locals would come up to us, you know, in in Cape Breton, and I remember one guy kind of wanted looked like he wanted to get in a fight with me because I was, you know, he was. I got to tell you, if you're in a little bar in Sydney and you're sitting in between Laurie Hallier and Ilan Udi. <laughs> Uh, and guys come up to talk, they don't particularly want to talk to you. No, no kidding, right? <laughs> no. Uh, uh, <laughs> so uh, at one point, uh, they were trying to say, like, we were all Torontonians, which we weren't, half of us were from Montreal, and I was actually, so I was saying, well, yeah, I, I get cast in Montreal, but I was born in the Maritimes. And he said, well, where? And I said, 
Chatham, New Brunswick. And he goes, oh, no, kidding. He said, I was born in Chatham. And it was like, all of a sudden, we were like, best <laughs> I didn't tell him I moved when I was four months old. I didn't feel any point. Details. Yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, it was, uh, and I and I always try to get back to the Maritimes every year. And that year, I was going to miss it. And I, because I, I had to go work. I had to make some, some money. I had to go to, had to go to, you know, to Delhi and do some tobacco picking. And then they come in out of the field and been told like I was getting an all expense paid trip to to Sydney Mines, Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. I was like Perfect. All right. <laughs> let's go. Yeah. And all these years later here here you are. Yes. Yeah. Amazing. Well, Jim, uh, I want to personally, well, we want to thank you for uh, monopolizing your time for the last hour <laughs> or so. Um, it's always so interesting to talk to people that actually work on these films that we love so much. And uh, I'm delighted to learn that you're a sweet, sweet dude. Uh, <laughs> I'm and, glad that you're enjoying the fan response. Oh, it's, yeah. it's what makes it, right? It's what, uh, it's like I said, it's, it's humbling and you can really appreciate that you did you know something uh I, I usually I, you get it a lot in live theater you you I, I you don't get it a lot in film unless you do a film that's pretty good <laughs> <laughs> well you definitely did um is there anything coming up that you want to th- let the listeners know about before we go if any of you are in in florida in september uh there'll be the big reunion and we'd love to see you there uh I know a lot of our snowbirds like to go down to Florida, usually a little bit later, but September 23rd is the weekend for that. Uh, other than that, I'm going to continue uh, uh, writing some stuff and hopefully we'll be in touch about something that's that's coming up down the line because right now I'm open, open to uh, all possibilities and uh, it's... it's it, still talking to, to all the all the folks from the the film so you never know if we might not do something again not necessarily my bloody valentine related but hopefully uh hopefully you'll be hearing more from some of us okay we'll definitely be keeping yeah. our uh ears open for that yeah so uh thank you one more time for uh doing the show i'm Wes Knight. i'm typical lydia and you've been listening to dead air Once upon a time, on a sad valentine In a place known as Hanegar Mine A legend began, every woman and man Would always remember the time And those who remained were never the same You could see the fear in their eyes Once every year, as the 14th draws near There's a hush all over the town While the legend they say on a Valentine's Day Is a curse that'll live on and on And no one will know as the years come and go Of the horror from long time ago Twenty years came and went and everyone spent the 14th in quiet regret And those still alive know the secret survives In the darkness that looms in the night For oh, the legend they say on a Valentine's Day Is a curse that'll live on and on And no one will know 
as the years come and go of the horror from long time ago. In this little town, when the 14th comes round, there's a silence and fear in the air. Remember the morn that the legend was born, all the shock and the horror was there. Or oh, the legend they say on a Valentine's Day is a curse that'll live on and on. And no one will know as the years come and go of the horror from long time ago. And no one will know as the years come and go of the horror from long time ago.